Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see in here. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 27, Leaping In Without a Net. I thought by now that I had done enough leaps to fill in most of the holes of my Swiss cheese memory. Wrong. I just discovered I'm terrified of heights. I'm going to do the triple, Victor. I swear I am. Not as long as I'm your father. Papa! Yeah, uh, you want to know why you're here? Yes. All right, all right. Well, I don't know. Ziggy's having a little trouble zeroing in. Your name is Victor Panzini. You're part of a Hungarian aerial act. Aerial act? Yeah. Isn't that great? Well, one year ago, they were on. Top. They were the star attraction of the Circus Vargas, and then Maria, who is your mother and Eva's, uh, she got killed trying to do the triple in Chicago. You're the safety man. That's important. That's great. That's fine. Just as long as I don't have to do that. You do. I just got an update from Ziggy. There's a 97.2% chance that you're here to catch Eva. No. In two days, she's going to get killed doing the triple because her father drops her. Unless you're up there to catch, Eva's going to die. Hello, and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And we have an amazing show for you today. We are talking all about the circus episode, Leaping In Without a Net. And we have a great interview with the writer of this episode and co-executive producer of Quantum Leap, Tommy Thompson. This was an amazing get. And it's a great interview, and I'm very excited for you to hear it. Heather, first impressions of Leaping In Without a Net. This was a kind of weird episode. It didn't really have a big like a big purpose or anything. It was good. It was one of those easygoing kind of episodes, I think. But it was good. I liked it. Easy fun. Yeah. Enjoyable. Not for Sam. <laughs> or Scott, apparently. Yeah. But we got to find out some good information about this episode since you talked to Tommy Thompson. So that's pretty cool. A lot of good insight, yeah. According to Jay Schwartz, this was Scott's least favorite episode only because he was motion sick. Is that just from like swinging back and forth on a swing? I think so. And according to Tommy Thompson, which we'll hear later, 
Scott did not like this episode because he is a little bit afraid of heights. So could you imagine being afraid of heights, having motion sickness, and getting the script in your hand that says, you are a trapeze artist this week? Yeah. I think, what did he say? What did I do to you or something? (laughs) (laughs) But Scott, the consummate professional, he was able to use that so you would feel that his character also was afraid of heights and uh, maybe a little bit motion sick. Yeah, I feel like he really wasn't very comfortable in this episode. But that worked out. Are you afraid of heights? Yes, absolutely. I love roller coasters and... I don't mind being up high in buildings and stuff, but I don't think I could go on the trapeze. I don't think I could trust myself to hold onto a bar while I swung. Well, like, I used to go on the monkey bars when I was a little kid, but your feet are only a couple feet off the ground. But I'm afraid of heights. I I like roller coasters that loop-de-loop, but I don't like roller coasters that have drops or the water, like the log flume rides (laughs) that do the straight down. I don't mind the log flumes. What, uh, Six Flags Great Adventure had one, and doesn't Disney have one? Yeah. Yeah, those I don't mind. I've been on it once, and I'm done. Roller coasters, uh, I used to like them. Not so much anymore. Monkey bars? I fell off the monkey bars once. It seemed like a lot more than a few feet. I got the wind knocked out of me, and when I woke up, my brain was going... And I could barely see anything. Maybe you were on like the intense monkey bars. Maybe. I think I had a concussion and the wind knocked out of me. So I don't know. Just falling is not fun. Yeah, I climbed a lot when I was a kid, but give me a couple hundred feet off the ground and I'm scared. I don't know if I could do the trapeze. I honestly have never been in that situation and I don't know if I'd want to be. I remember in gym class as a kid, I couldn't even hold myself up on a bar or a rope. So... I don't think I could swing if I couldn't hold myself. Yeah, I don't think I would be skilled enough, but I don't think I would be able to do it. I guess if everybody can do it, then it wouldn't be that big of an act. Yeah. The triple. (gasps) The triple. The flying panzinis. Well, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that and the rest of the episode after the episode recap. This is season two, episode 19, Leaping In Without a Net. Original broadcast date. March 28th, 1990. Written by Tommy Thompson and directed by Christopher T. Welch. Sam leaps in to find himself hanging upside down on a swinging trapeze in a circus big top. A young woman holding on to another trapeze tells Sam not to mess up this time, then swings herself towards him, turning somersaults in the air as she falls towards his outstretched hands. Sam tries to catch her but fails, and she falls into a safety net a few feet above the ground. It's November 18, 1958, and Sam has leapt into Victor Panzini, a Hungarian trapeze artist working at a small carnival in Iowa with his sister Eva and their father Laszlo. Victor and Eva were practicing their routine when Sam leaped in, and now Eva is upset with Sam for not catching her. However, Sam has a bigger problem as he suddenly remembers that he is afraid of heights. Eva tells Sam that he's just rusty, and he'll do better next time. Sam isn't so sure. Eva says she dreamed about their mother last night, and she wants to be the first person since their mother to do the triple. Laszlo has entered the big top, and angrily tells Eva that she isn't going to do the triple. He shouts at Sam to get down, and Sam lets go of his trapeze falling awkwardly into the net and drawing a round of laughter from a group of carnival performers who have gathered to watch. Laszlo shouts at them to get out, and they leave with more laughter. 
Sam falls from the net to the ground, then stands up to receive a slap from Laszlo. Eva quickly intervenes and tells Laszlo she asked Sam to help her practice. She claims that she can do the triple and the Panzinis can be headliners again. Laszlo ignores her, tells the two of them they have a show in an hour, and leaves. Eva tells Sam that she knows it's hard for him to be up there again, but insists that they are going to do the triple and nothing is going to stop them, not even their father. Later, Sam is strolling the circus grounds when he meets Big Mo, the circus's ringmaster, and resident little person. Big Mo asks Sam if Eva is going to do the triple and tells him they can move on to the big cities if she does it. After Big Mo leaves, Sam is joined by Al. Inside Victor's trailer, Al tells Sam that the Panzinis used to be the most famous aerial act in the world, until Victor and Eva's mother, Maria, was killed trying to do the triple. Since then, Laszlo has been restricting the act to simple catches between Eva and himself, and the Panzinis are no longer working in the big time. Sam responds that for the Panzinis, the catches might be simple, but for him, they'll be impossible. Just then, Laszlo knocks on the door, telling Sam that they're on in 20 minutes. Sam insists to Al that he can't do it. Inside the big top, Laszlo and Eva are in their costumes waiting to go on when Sam arrives wearing his costume. An angry Laszlo tells Sam he doesn't ever want to see him in tights again and throws a stagehand's jumpsuit at him, clutching his shoulder in pain as he does so. Laszlo and Eva are introduced to the crowd and Eva starts climbing toward her trapeze. Laszlo tells Sam to hold Eva's ladder as she climbs, then starts ascending a rope to his trapeze. Sam is relieved that he isn't part of the act, but Al arrives with bad news. In two days, Eva is going to try and do the triple, but Laszlo will fail to catch her, and she will die in the fall unless Sam catches her instead. The next morning, Eva wakes Sam before dawn so the two of them can practice again. She senses Sam's fear and tells him that he isn't responsible for killing their mother. Sam realizes that Victor was performing as Maria's catcher on the night she died, and then concludes that Laszlo now blames him. Eva tells Sam that he is a better catcher than Laszlo since he hurt his shoulder, and she wants him to catch her when she does the triple. Sam tells Eva that he can't go up there again, and Eva leaves to practice on her own. Back in the big top, Sam and Al are watching Eva practice the triple. Al tells Sam that if he makes contact with Eva but fails to properly catch her, it could make her miss the net entirely. Sam asks if that's how Maria died, but Al tells him that there was no net because the Panzinis didn't use a net before the accident. Sam still insists that he can't be Eva's catcher, and Al responds that Sam is physically capable of it but just needs to get over his fear of heights. Eva sees Sam and tells him she just did the triple four times. Sam responds that practicing without a catcher is dangerous and tells her he'll be her catcher. Al tells Sam he has an idea about how to help him practice. Outside the big top, Laszlo happily tells Sam and Eva that the Panzinis have been invited to perform at a major circus in Denver. The other carnival performers are upset to be losing their main attraction, and Big Mo gets into an argument with Laszlo. Laszlo calls Big Mo a dwarf, and Big Mo attacks him with a chokehold. One of the other performers throws a punch at Laszlo, but Sam punches him instead. Another man pulls a knife, but Sam takes him out with a spin kick, which brings a smile to Laszlo's face. 
Sam pulls Big Mo off of Laszlo's back. After Laszlo and the others leave, Eva reminds Sam that they still have to practice and tells him she'll see him up there. Sam is on his trapeze with his eyes clenched shut, and Al tells him to open his eyes and look straight at him, and not to look down. Sam nervously opens his eyes and looks around. Al teaches him how to properly position himself on the trapeze and start a swinging motion. Soon enough, Sam is hanging upside down and swinging through the air, but won't let go of the bar until Al sternly tells him that if he doesn't let go, then Eva will fall. Sam lets go of the bar and assumes a catching position. He asks Eva to start with a simple straight catch. Eva is disappointed, but obliges. Eva swings herself toward Sam, and he catches her hands at first, but then loses his grip on her with one hand. Hanging above the net, Eva tells Sam to let her go, but Al warns him not to do it. Sam lets go of Eva, who falls into the net. Sam is excited to have awkwardly caught Eva on his first try, but then discovers that Eva has bounced off of the net and is lying in a heap on the ground. Sam drops into the net and quickly scrambles down to the ground to check on Eva, who has been knocked out of breath but appears unharmed. Eva wants to keep practicing, but Sam insists that she shouldn't practice with him anymore. He tells her that if she performs tomorrow night in Denver, something terrible is going to happen. He says he knows that Laszlo is going to drop her. Eva responds that nobody knows the future, then has an idea and leads Sam out of the big top with her. Al asks Gushy to send him wherever Eva is taking Sam. Al appears inside the tent of Sybil, the carnival fortune teller. Sybil is seated at a table and looks around in confusion as Al stands behind her, seeming to sense him. Eva and Sam enter the tent and Eva accuses Sybil of telling Sam that Eva is going to die doing the triple. Sybil responds that she only told Sam what she saw in his soul then looks around toward Al again. Al is uneasy and leaves. Sybil surprises herself by saying that an angel told Sam about Eva's death. Eva asks Sybil to look into her eyes and tell her if she's going to die on the trapeze. Sybil says that she could, but not for a long time, because she sees children in Eva's eyes. Eva is relieved and tells Sam that he was just afraid for her and leaves. Sybil tells Sam that Eva won't die as long as he catches her, then stares into his eyes with wonder. She tells him that she's never noticed before how many times he's been reincarnated, and that she can see a lot of souls in his eyes. Inspired by Sybil's words, Sam climbs up to the trapeze again, determined to overcome his fear of heights and catch Eva. Al reappears and tells Sam he's proud of him. Sam assumes a catching position, and Al says he's doing great. Laszlo is in his trailer alone, talking to Maria. He says that his son should be catching Eva instead of him, but he's not sure if he can trust him or if he can forgive him. He tells Maria that he is proud of his son for the way he fought the other men today, like a true Hungarian. He says that maybe it's time to give his son another chance, and it would be good to smile and hug him again. Al is teaching Sam how to properly catch someone when Eva enters the big top and starts climbing toward her trapeze. Eva wants to start with a double, but Sam tells her to start with a single. Eva agrees and swings toward Sam. Releasing from her trapeze, Eva performs a double somersault, and Sam successfully catches her. She tells him that the flying panzinis don't do singles. Laszlo has entered the big top and watches the two of them from the ground. Eva moves to a higher starting position, 
and Al explains to Sam that she needs more height to practice the triple. Eva attempts a triple, and Sam fails to catch her. She falls into the net, almost being thrown onto the ground again. Laszlo brings her safely down from the edge of the net and angrily shouts up at Sam, asking him if he's trying to kill his sister too. Sam, Laszlo, and Eva are on the road and headed to Denver with their trailers. Behind the wheel of his car, Sam tells Al that Laszlo has a torn rotator cuff, and Al guesses that that's what causes him to drop Eva. Sam says that he can't catch Eva, but Al tells him that he made the mistake of reaching for Eva when she practiced the triple and assures him that he'll catch her as long as he doesn't reach. The Panzinis arrive at the circus in Denver and are greeted by Clifford Vargas, the circus owner. Clifford shows them a poster advertising the Panzini's return, and the poster says Eva is going to perform the triple. Laszlo tells Clifford that they don't do the triple, and Eva confesses that she sent Clifford a letter in Laszlo's name. She tells Laszlo that she and Sam will do the triple, and that the Panzini's haven't been a proper act since Maria died. Laszlo reluctantly agrees to let Eva do the triple, and she hugs him. Laszlo says that he will catch Eva, but Sam refuses because of Laszlo's injury. He tells Laszlo that the same pride that got Maria killed will cause him to try and perform when he shouldn't, and this time it will kill Eva. Laszlo tries to slap Sam, but Sam grabs his arm and prevents it. Laszlo winces in pain, then backs down and walks away without a word. The night of the performance has arrived, and the ringmaster introduces the Panzinis to the crowd. Sam is sitting on his trapeze, a bundle of nerves, as Al watches from close by. Eva waves to the crowd as they are introduced. Laszlo enters the big top to watch from the crowd. The ringmaster announces to the crowd that Eva will perform the triple, the same way her mother did on the night of her death, without a safety net. The crowd gasps, and Sam looks down in shock as the net beneath them is taken down. Al admits that he didn't tell Sam about the net not being used because Sam wouldn't have agreed to catch Eva if he knew about it. He tells Sam that if he doesn't catch Eva, then Laszlo will drop her. The ringmaster asks the crowd for their complete silence as Sam starts swinging. Sam assumes the catching position, and Laszlo stares up intently as Eva gets ready to jump. Al watches nervously from the ground as Eva starts swinging on her trapeze. Sam swings toward her, and Eva leaps from her trapeze, turning three somersaults before falling toward Sam's outstretched hands. Sam catches her successfully, and the crowd bursts into applause, Laszlo included. The net is put back up so Eva can drop safely. Sam follows her down, and Al lets out a heavy sigh of relief. On the ground, Eva runs over to Laszlo and hugs him. Sam wonders why he hasn't left yet. Laszlo comes over with Eva and tells Sam that he didn't wave to the crowd and that he better not forget next time. Sam says he won't and refers to Laszlo as Papa and they hug. As Eva looks at the two of them and smiles and the crowd continues to applaud, Sam leaps. And that recap was from Phil. Thank you so much, Phil. Yes, thank you, Phil. So there's a lot of things happening in this episode, really. 
Yeah. At first glance, not a lot. But when you watch it and analyze it, there's things going on. One thing I really didn't notice at first was the whole relationship between the father and son, Victor and Laszlo. I realized that Laszlo was like being a jerk, but I didn't realize why. But when you look at the whole situation where he blames his son for his wife's death, that's pretty messed up and hard to deal with. Yeah, that was kind of crappy behavior on dad's part. And I don't think you can put that on your son. If you if you raise your kids to be part of a trapeze artist act, I don't get that because I would not want my kid flying around on a trapeze, especially without a net. I guess when it's in your blood, like what Al was saying, you know, you just do it. Like she climbed up there and was like, I'm going to do a triple without a second guess. She was like, I'm just going to do it. And I was going, how do you turn three times in the air <laughs> before you hit the other part? Like, I just, I can't imagine controlling my body enough to make that happen. I guess it does help that she was higher up. They've probably been doing that kind of stuff since they were teeny tiny. Now they're adults. So the dad's just like, you're one of us now. Yeah, I guess. It just seems a lot more dangerous to me than it did to him. But you would think after he lost his wife, he would not want his children to keep doing that. Well, his son isn't allowed. That's true. He's only the safety guy. Sam was like, Al, I'm just a safety guy. Can we talk about that for a little bit? What was his job? He didn't have one. He was just, it was just for a show. Yeah, holding the ladder, right? And the rest of the episode, everybody uses the ladder all the time and nobody holds it. Like I said, I'm pretty sure it was just for show that he was part of the act, but not really. Maybe he was more like the truck driver slash set up the equipment guy. Yeah. He was like the ring boy. I was really not expecting that. When he had his tights on, I like thought maybe he put her tights on or something. Like I, <laughs> I when Laszlo was asking him what he thought he was doing, I was like, that's really weird because I don't see anything wrong. You know what confused me? He was biting his tape like he was trying to either put it on or take it off, but like for a long time and he wasn't either putting it on or taking it off. You might bite your tape to rip it, but he just kept biting it like he was doing something to for the sake of doing something, but I don't know what he was doing. Maybe it's because I have experience with wrist tape. I don't know. Is it weird that I didn't notice that? Well, you were probably looking at him in tights. He had really form-fitting tights in this episode. You know it was weird? Like the little underwear that he had on. They were really odd looking. Well, it was 1958, so I mean, I guess the garment technology wasn't quite there yet. Yeah, I guess it's just different. I thought it was funny to see him in like little ballet shoes. Those were definitely ballet shoes. Is that what they use, trapeze art? I have no idea. I think I saw a trapeze artist once at a circus and I was like, that is crazy. Why are you doing that? Don't you know that's unsafe? And they drop the net so it's more dangerous and more exciting for the crowd, right? I'm thinking if they didn't drop the net, the crowd would still be like, this is awesome. But then it wouldn't be called leaping in without a net. Who is a net anyway? <laughs> I don't know. I just keep thinking back to the pink performance where she was like doing all that trapeze and ribbon work over the, the Grammys. I couldn't believe she did that without a net either. But <laughs> that falls under the same category as I understand the how, but not the why. I don't even understand the how. It's crazy. So I googled images of trapeze artists and none of them were wearing those ballet shoes. So maybe that was just a thing. Mostly barefoot with like tape on their feet. That makes sense. 
Maybe they just had like a bet to see if they could get Scott Bakula <laughs> in white tights and some ballet juice. This week, Scott, you eat. <laughs> <laughs> You're in white tights and some ballet slippers. You want the bad news or the worst news? <laughs> Bad news is you're wearing ballet slippers. Worst news is you're hanging from wires. <laughs> and not harnesses, just hanging. Oh. So your favorite, I think, part of the episode was when we put the closed captioning on and you just kept laughing at, I tried to touch her butt. <laughs> yeah. At the beginning of the episode where he was describing her dream about Maria, she's like, I tried to touch her butt. She faded away. And like when she says, I tried to touch her butt, it sounds like I tried to touch her butt and I laughed every time. <laughs> the 12 year old Denali was just like, <laughs> she kind of did the Christopher Walken thing where she put the pause in the wrong place or something. Yeah. But I, I found it amusing. Or she put it in the right place just to kind of be funny. Like, what can I do with this line? I know, but. But. One of the things that came out of this episode was it was Tommy Thompson's first episode and it brought him to Quantum Leap, which was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Like you said, it doesn't have a really like a big moral or message to it. I guess overcoming your fears was kind of the only thing I saw. Sam had to overcome his fear of heights to save this girl. And he did, I think. Enough to save her anyway. Well, it was like Al said, if he didn't do it, she would die. If he did do it, she might not die. So what do you do? Yeah. Oh my gosh, though. My favorite part of the episode was when Sam turns around and he's like, let me guess. You ran away from home and joined the circus. <laughs> Just the look on Scott's face. Which only supports my theory, <laughs> but I think it's funny that they addressed it in the episode that Al is the expert on. Al has lived like 19 different lives because he's done everything in his life. Who do you think did more in their life, Al Calavici or Forrest Gump? Al Calavici. I think so, too. <laughs> I mean, it's it's ridiculous. But your newest theory that has not been disproven yet. Yeah, I think we had some feedback on that later. A little bit, but none of it disproves what you were saying. So maybe that's why. Who's ever assigning this team, God, time, fate, whatever. I'm in favor of whatever. Do you have a personal favorite? I'm thinking whatever. Whatever's cool. Fate, maybe. I like that everything happens for a reason kind of logic. Whoever might be assigning this team to this particular problem might be thinking, well, Al has some history with the circus, so maybe he can be of help. I had this weird thought during this episode. I feel like it's weird that Al can go. I know we've already talked about this, but I feel like it's weird that Al can go other places other than where Sam is. Is then Al able to travel in time as a hologram? And just look at the past. Like, I'm so confused as to the purpose of Al not having to be in the same room or vicinity as Sam. Because, like, if I see you, if you're a hologram and you're linked to my neurological brainwaves, where I see you, you're there. But in my brain, <laughs> I feel like Al should not be there if Sam is not looking at him. Does that even make sense? I don't know. I just feel like... That's a weird hole in the rules there. I mean, I guess for TV it works out because he can go wherever. But the way that I understand a neurological hologram is like, if I'm looking at you, you're there. Almost like an imaginary friend. Like if I had an imaginary friend, he couldn't go over, <laughs> like go to a party that I wasn't at because he's in my imagination. He's my neurological hologram. He's 
it's my brain that's linked to him. So how could he go somewhere? Like he shouldn't exist unless Sam is looking at him. What's your thought on that? I agree. Neurological hologram. The reason Al can see what's around him in the imaging chamber is because he's neurologically linked to Sam. So he should only be able to observe what Sam can see. Right. But there is a rule book somewhere. But he should also only exist in 1958 where Sam can see him. And in his current time. Well, right. Like in 1958, for example, in this episode, when Sam walks away, he should either disappear. I guess he could still technically be in the room. I would think if a computer is keeping track of this and relaying Sam's thoughts into an imaging chamber, that any place Sam has seen, Al can then go because it's in the computer memory and they can recreate it in a hologram. Kind of like that episode of Farscape where Crichton never went into the women's room. So when he went in there, there was nothing in there because they couldn't recreate it because he didn't go in there before. He should be to a point where Sam... Like, I'm currently looking at you, therefore I see you and you're there, but if I walk away, you're still there because you're here. But if you're my neurological hologram, I feel like if I'm not looking at you, you shouldn't exist, which is kind of crazy. It's something it's hard to understand, but I think science has proven if no one is observing something, it doesn't exist, and they're still trying to figure out why. Well, maybe Al exists because we're observing him. Ah. (laughs) Okay, that's my crazy rant for this episode. I think Hayden said that they can send him back into the past anywhere, anytime. Huh. So. Well, okay. See, that, but that was my... Either either he can time travel as a hologram to anywhere in time and space in the past. That's why they have to interview the person who leaps into the aura of Dr. Sam Beckett back in the waiting room to find out where to send Al. But can they only send Al back in time because Sam is leaping? I think there are two different. So why even leap back in time if you can just go back in time and observe the past and just like be there in all these awesome historical moments? Why even leap? Well, Dr. Beckett had a reason for that. But unfortunately, with the Swiss cheese brain, he forgot. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. This is what you get for someone who's never seen the series before. So I guess that's a good thing because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. The rule book is flexible. You know what's funny? When you're talking to a bunch of people about all these crazy theories and they know the ending and they're just like, just keep watching and shut up. (laughs) They're shouting at their imaginary Heather, their neurological hologram in front of them saying, no, that's not how it works, Heather. Or, right? Yeah. 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 Y'all think I'm crazy and it's just that I haven't seen the rest of the episodes yet. That's the element that I bring to the show. Crazy theories that nobody else believes because I'm the only one left that has never seen this show in season four episode six it clearly disproves it heather (laughs) it probably does it (laughs) probably does but you're not there yet no so what did you think about all the trapeze stuff going on what do you mean what did i think about it did you enjoy the aerial acrobatics was that thrilling to you or was it exciting yeah i was like we should take randy to the circus i think that's where my brain went with that i've only been to the circus a few times but it's fun what was your thought I was scared of the heights, and it kind of made me nervous, and I just wondered why. And, of course, the stunt doubles kind of ruined the illusion for me because they looked absolutely nothing like Fabiana and Scott. But I can understand that because you don't just get a stunt person. You have to get trapeze artists. 
Yeah, but I was surprised that Scott did a lot more than I expected him to. Oh my goodness, right? Flying off the trapeze, landing in the net, bouncing around, flipping around off the net. Oh my goodness. But he, yeah, he did do a lot more than than he normally does. That was him. The only thing I don't think he was doing was really catching the person that was, because that's a safety thing. Right. But the things that he could do, he did. And uh, it made the episode more real, I think. I wasn't nervous watching it. I was surprised that Scott did as much as he did. And the only time that the stunt doubles really bothered me was at the end when the stunt double had this like crazy cheeky grin on her face when she was doing the triple. And I was like, that doesn't look anything like Fabiana. The hair colors were different too. Oh yeah, completely. And she had this like crazy teethy grin. It was odd. Body types were different. Yeah, which, like like you said, you understand because you have to get a trapeze stunt double. And I'm sure there's a lot less trapeze artists in the world than stunt people. I don't know. There's a lot of Cirque du Soleil people, right? Well, that's now. There was no Cirque du Soleil Oh, right. This was 25 years ago. Yeah. Duh, Heather. There might have been, but I don't think it was, you know, widely popular like now. That stuff's crazy, too. People die doing that all the time. It's dangerous. It's the, I'm assuming it's just the adrenaline rush. I remember that when I used to, like, perform for a musical theater or a play or anything like that. The adrenaline after their performance was awesome, but I wasn't on trapeze, so I don't know. Maybe the adrenaline for that is just insane. The other part of this episode that I kept thinking about was, again, going back to Laszlo. Even if he did blame his son for his wife's death, since it was clearly an accident, he shouldn't have kept blaming his son to his face about it. He should have kept it to himself. I think that the whole Hungarian angry father, I'm the head of this family thing had something to do with that, though. Was it racism against Hungarians in this episode? Because I don't really, is that a thing? Because I heard him call him hunky, which is similar to honky. Um, I don't think the episode was racist towards Hungarians. No, but was it trying to show that maybe? I don't know. I think that Big Mo was mad and he was just calling names. Like whatever you happen to be. Right. Like if he was something else, he probably would have made fun of his tights or something. You know what I mean? Like I feel like it wasn't necessarily a racial slur as much as just trying to insult him. I've known Hungarian people and it wasn't a thing. Kind of like, yeah, you're Hungarian. Okay, that's cool. I didn't ever know that was like a a thing. Is it a thing? Like if somebody called me hunky, I would think that was a compliment because that would mean I was like a hunk, right? So hunkies is an ethnic slur in the United States that was used in like the start of the 20th century. And it was insulting because it grouped together the Hungarians, the Russians, and the Slavics when they were doing manual labor in the mines. And people just called them all hunkies and they got mad because they weren't all Hungarians. So it's an ethnic slur that isn't used anymore. I had never heard it before or after this episode. Obviously, it's not used anymore, but I don't even know. It it doesn't even say anything bad. Like the only bad part about it is that I guess if you were to call someone from a different country, they would get insulted. If somebody was like, you're from Canada, I wouldn't be like, no, you jerk. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've said I'm from Canada before. I would, yeah, Right. Like I'm saying I wouldn't be insulted if somebody said. Remember when we went on the cruise, I wanted to get a Canadian shirt so people didn't hate me when we went to other countries. <laughs> yeah. 
Obviously, it, it wasn't. It's not still around, so maybe it wasn't that effective. Is it bad that I wouldn't mind if somebody called me hunky? Well, now I don't think hunk is a bad thing. It's weird how things change, right? Well, at first when I was looking it up, I thought they were saying hungy, like a, with a G. Yeah. And I looked up and, and hungy is actually in the Urban Dictionary for hungry when you don't use the R. Huh. Like, I'm hungy. And I was like, okay, that's not exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to go along with that whole scene, you were even saying like, he referred to Big Mo as a little person instead of dwarf was insulting. But he says you're just a little person, which is the term that is used now. But it's good that he, you know, you were saying when we were watching the episode that it was, you know, it was advanced of him just to use little person. Big Mo was like, yeah, I like that little person, but he still kicked him in the shins. (laughs) So he went for the joke, I guess. There are some people that are just like that. Yeah. Doesn't matter your height or your width. I'll kick you in the shins. Oh, I just meant always in it for the joke. Oh. I know people like that. <laughs> that would be me. No matter what happens, first thing that comes out, joke. Yeah. The episode starts off really cool with a point of view shot from Sam's perspective, swinging upside down in that tent. Half of me was thinking, wow, that looks dangerous and scary. The other half was trying to figure out the camera rig they used to do that. I think that was the only part in the episode where I had to look away. Really? Yeah. That was a little crazy, which is good. I mean, it was a good effect. I'm always looking for a little bit of errors here and there. Always. A few episodes back, Skipper Martin explained to us in that interview about how they use the Luma Key system to put the titles on the film. Well, in the T in Leaping In Without a Net, there's a, like a hole in it. So they messed up. <laughs> Whoever made that card messed up that little part and it transferred over to the cyan color of the titles where there was just like a hole in it. Yeah, I noticed um, later how fuzzy the scene with Sybil was because I'm like, why is it so blurry? And you're like, because there's an effect coming up. You can always tell. It's it's kind of like uh, when you're watching a cartoon and a character is about to hit a wall, the part of the wall that's going to be exploding out is a different color. Yeah. And it's the same thing with an effect coming up in Quantum Leap where they're layering two layers of film and there's dirt and dust on them and in between them. It just takes the quality down by half and uh, adds dirt. So you know something's coming. I also noticed that there's a lot of times in this episode that the focus is off. Especially when Big Mo's on the ground and they have uh, a shot down. Yeah, it's like there's one shot that I can think of where they are shooting with Mo and the focus is on the truck behind him. Like the truck, the words, the everything. And I shoot photography sometimes. I'm okay, but I'm not like a professional or anything. But I know at least how to focus a camera. And the focus is literally on the truck. And he's (laughs) in like the foreground talking out of focus. And that really bugged me every time I watch this episode. Well, they're filming it with actual film cameras. And there's a separate person that pulls focus. He's a focus puller. And his responsibility, I don't know who did it in this episode, but his responsibility is to measure from the lens to the subject you want in focus. And when the camera gets in position, he has a knob that's connected to the camera that physically moves the lens. So he's not looking through the lens, but he's responsible for knowing the exact measurement to get it in focus. So the focus puller would be the one. But isn't the person who's looking at the camera, can't they tell that it's out of focus? And don't they say like, hey, this isn't in focus? I don't think as much, no. Wow, that sucks. 
But it's one of those things where if the focus is bad in the dailies, they would go back and refilm it. But there might have been a problem with maybe the actor was already filmed out and they didn't have him any longer or something along the lines to where the production schedule was a little bit behind and they really didn't have the time to go back and reshoot it. But to my knowledge, this is the first episode where that happened. The focus was not focused on the actor. I would have noticed that if it had happened before. But it was funny because I watched it the first time and I'm like, maybe it's just me. And then I watched it the second time and I'm like, no, that's really not in focus. And that it's odd to see that. And it still made the cut. And it wasn't for like artistic reasons or anything like you see sometimes, but it was just. Oh, no, it was a it was a boo boo. It was a boo boo. I don't think there's a way to fix that in post. No, but it's weird that the shot made it like it's weird that they included it because it was, I guess, man, watching it on Laserdisc or (laughs) (laughs) I guess you wouldn't even notice. You wouldn't notice back then. You really wouldn't. And that's really what they were doing it for, for television on March 28th, 1990. They had no idea this stuff was going to last forever. Hey, at least they didn't edit it on videotape. They mentioned in this episode that Eva is 18. Did she look 18 to you? Not even a little bit. Maybe 28. Yeah, I was saying add 10 years. Yeah. But we've talked about that before and we've gotten good reasons because, you know, you get an 18-year-old girl and you got to go back two months later and refilm it. She's going to look totally different. Yeah, I I didn't really think about that too much. That wasn't something I noticed. I'm I'm not surprised that you noticed that. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was kind of weird that she, they said she was 18. But it it's worse when it's like, look at all these high school kids. This was just one. So it wasn't as bad. Something I liked in this episode was, you know how sometimes Scott or Dean are always trying to find little ways of putting their character into the episode or making it just a little bit more special. When Al beat Sam into the trailer and he said, what took you so long? He had like a really smiley face like, this is really amusing me and I'm really happy about this. And I just love that look, that moment. Yeah, that was cute. I like their little relationship. Total tangent here has nothing really to do with the episode, but they kept mentioning the triple. We're going to do the triple. You can't do the triple. There is no triple. Every time they said that, I was thinking triple whopper. Did you want a triple whopper? I think it made me want a triple whopper, but it reminded me of this time that I was at Burger King and I asked for a quadruple whopper. This lady was like, no, there is no quadruple whopper. I'm like, the way you do it is you just add a patty and it charged me a dollar. It's on your register. Just add a patty. No, we cannot do that. Triple Whopper is big enough. Four would be ridiculous. And I'm like, I want to pay you an extra dollar for a quadruple Whopper. No, no quadruple Whopper. She was looking out for your health. Maybe she was. Maybe I should thank her. But I was just like, really? Maybe she just didn't know how many quadruple was. That's possible. That's very possible. So what I did was I just got two triple Whoppers and put them together. And I almost got sick because that was a lot of food. I have this problem that when I order from fast food places and the people I'm talking to are really not intelligent, I get angry. (laughs) I should guess I I don't know. It doesn't surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) But but she said, no, there is no quadruple. And then (laughs) he was saying, no, there is no triple. And I was like, okay, that's kind of a thing. It's like, do you have any Splenda? No, but do you want the sugar? No, thank you. (laughs) We have pink stuff. No, No, it's not the same. Should I get you the sugar? No. No. (laughs) So we almost saw Sam naked. Yeah, Eva pulled the blanket right off of Sam and the angle, you could kind of see a little something. It wasn't like Ben Affleck something, but there was something there. (laughs) 
There was a lot of Ben Affleck. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of Sam in this episode. That had to be a prosthetic. That's not real. For all the men out there, that's what we were going to go for. Just to... <laughs> It didn't look like Sam was wearing anything. I only saw his like stomach. Maybe I wasn't looking... Where I was? <laughs> I don't know. He wasn't looking close enough. Should have gotten closer to the screen. But uh, that was interesting. So I guess he doesn't wear anything when he sleeps. Do you think that's a Sam thing? I think so. Obviously wasn't a Victor thing. Right. I used to sleep like that when I was single, but now that I'm a dad, I have to wear pajamas. It's it's part of the rules. It's like a, it's a dad thing. Yeah, you don't want to scar any children <laughs> for life. <laughs> there was a lot of things in this episode that maybe somebody at Pixar might have liked this episode. Al has a pet roach. Yeah. Wally has a pet roach. Right. The character of Eva was named Eva. Right. And the roach's name was Kevin, which is also a Disney Pixar bird. Right. So I don't know. That was just, there was a lot of things that I was like, hmm, is that a coincidence? I think we're Disney Pixar people and we're finding things like that. Maybe, but it was just one thing after another that kind of made me think. I have to say it was pretty cool, the whole Sybil part. Because I'm not really, I don't know how I feel about fortune tellers and all that stuff, especially like circus ones, you know? (laughs) know. Okay, I know exactly how I feel about fortune tellers and especially ones that work in a circus. (laughs) I mean, I know how I feel, but I mean, I was trying to be nice about it. Okay, I'm I'm not. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not. (laughs) Well, but okay, so I generally don't believe in fortune tellers. And especially ones who work in the circus. I don't know. I think they kind of are all the same. But I thought that the part with Sybil was cool because it was like she knew something was going on, but not what. I loved her reaction every time she just blurted out what she didn't even know she knew. Right. And she also made these really cool pauses. Like she'd be like, I'm thinking she was just like, did I just say that? Why do I know that? And also, I think it was, she's a fortune teller at a circus, so probably... She's not even expecting to know this stuff. She's probably not even really psychic as far as she knows, and (laughs) she's surprised that she's getting things when she normally has to make it up. Even Al was like, I'm going to go because this is weird. But I, I don't know. I just thought that that was really cool. And then she noticed that Sam had a lot of souls in his eyes. Which led me to think, does Sam keep a little bit of each leap E with him every time he moves on? He's got like a pocket full of souls. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking that, you know, what if Sam retained a little bit of each leap E as he went along? Then he would acquire more and more skills and personality traits. If she's seeing a lot of souls in him and reincarnations, maybe there's something left behind. I would think that... I guess it would kind of show up like reincarnations if she could actually see those things. But if you notice the eyes, they're really big on the eyes in this show. Like in the last episode with magic, they were saying that they did notice a difference in his eyes. And I would assume that if you believed in all that kind of stuff, that it would like leave an imprint on his soul or aura or whatever. Mind. Whatever that's all that stuff we can't see. (laughs) There's uh, some good special effects in this episode, other than being able to tell they're coming up. Like when you saw Al floating in midair next to Sam, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that did look pretty cool. And there were uh, like a couple of cool practical effects. Like one of them I can think of is when Al was like standing in the sunroof of the truck while they were driving. And then he was like lowered down 
somehow. And it didn't look like to me that he was just like kneeling down or sitting down. It looked like he was like lowered somehow. Maybe Dean is just that good. He might be. I know in another scene where it looked like he was being raised up, he was just standing up when Sam was on the trapeze. Yeah, like, you know those people that do the stairs? Yeah, I can totally do the stairs behind a couch. I can do the stairs behind the couch. I can do the elevator behind the couch. So it's the same thing. But there was a bench seat in the front of the truck, or they cut it out, maybe. Ooh, I don't know how they did it, but it was cool. I liked it because I was like, I don't know how they did it. That's always good when you stump Albie. That's what they're striving for. Dean was hanging from wires for a couple parts. Oh, yeah. But you know what? It really didn't look like it. Didn't look that bad. No. Today, they probably would have just had him stand and do it on a green screen like they did some shots, but then like added the bottoms of his shoes in digitally. So we find out that Al knows Hungarian and Sam doesn't. So that's not one of his seven languages that he knows. Yeah. Or part of the Swiss cheese. I really do like the part where he's like, I saw two birds flying to your house. <laughs> and and Al's just like, oh, two no. birds, Sam, come on. Everybody knows two birds in the house is good luck. It's so weird. I've never heard of that. Is that a real thing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I've seen birds in supermarkets, but I've never had a bird in my house. That's when you know when a Megamart is a little too big, when they have a whole avian sanctuary in their rafters. I'm sorry. Did you just say Megamart? Yes. Okay. Um. Normally, we attempt to get the bird out of the grocery store, but it's always funny at like four o'clock in the morning when there's a bird flying around. It scares the crap out of everyone. Like, And then everyone's like, did you see a bird? There's totally a bird in here. But everybody, you like hear them scream because there's a bird that's like freaking out above their head. How do you get them out? Um, I don't know. Try to lure them into the, by the door and open the doors for them. I don't know. They want to get out. They don't want to be stuck in there. I was very impressed by the budget on this episode because not only did they have the huge circus sets, but when they went on location, when they went to Circus Vargas, there was a whole bunch of elephants in the shot with the actors. So you know it wasn't, it wasn't stock, stock. not stock footage at all. So I don't know how much it costs to set up a whole circus tent set up and get elephants and everything like that. They did use some stock footage when you see the chimpanzees and other elephants performing inside the big top. That's stock footage. That's obvious. And, and some shots of the crowd in the 70s. That one guy just clapping the whole time. It was weird, the little boy. Like, who was the little boy next to Laszlo that he lifted up to clap? It was just some random little boy that was next to him. I really think that might be somebody. Yeah, like somebody's kid that's now somebody. No, I mean in the storyline. Like who? I don't know. Thinking now, I wish I would have asked Tommy Thompson, but that's written for a reason. I don't think you just write a little boy. I think in your head when you're writing, not that I'm a famous writer, you have a whole little story in your head for that little character of the boy that's sitting next to Laszlo. They mentioned Tom again in this episode, Sam's brother. I'm sure people that lose their brother have to carry that along with them their whole life. I'm assuming there's a, an episode coming up that has more to do with his brother. So maybe they're just dropping little hints. So by the time we get there, we're already attached to him. Maybe. We already saw a picture of him in Disco Inferno and they mentioned him a lot. So uh, that might be something they're dropping hints towards or something they might pick up later. The hand link actually said something in this episode. It had text on it. You could read it. It wasn't just blinky lights. It would have been funny if it said, like, a curse word or something. Because you wouldn't have known back then. Do you know what it did say? It said tracking, which I thought for a second, oh, okay, that's really cool because Ziggy or Gushy or Al is tracking what's going to happen in the future as Sam makes different changes. 
My other thought was they just got a little circuit board from a VCR. So my question is, did the handlink actually say tracking, or are we seeing what Al sees when he looks at the blinky lights? The handlink actually said tracking. Well, that's cool. At least that handlink says stuff now, as long as we don't switch to a different handlink in the future that doesn't display words. I like that with Sam being afraid of heights, it wasn't that off because Victor was afraid because he dropped his mom. He didn't drop his mom, but you know what I mean? He didn't catch his mom. So at least it wasn't like, what do you mean? You're a pro. How are you all of a sudden afraid? This makes no sense. So it's cool that they kind of made it work, that it wasn't insane that all of a sudden Victor was afraid of heights. And I think Eva even mentioned something about how it's understandable that he would be nervous. Right. Now, has Sam been afraid of heights this whole time? I re- the only heights I remember really is he had to jump off a building as a stunt person and he was pushed off because he was too afraid to fall. The other time was in What Price Gloria when he had to go out on the ledge to save Gloria in the rain. Yeah, but I don't think he was afraid of heights then. He was like trying not to fall, but he wasn't afraid of heights like this. He was clinging to the rope, eyes closed, wouldn't look. I don't know. It's a little inconsistency. No, they said, all of a sudden, I remember, you know, he remembered all of a sudden that he was afraid of heights. That's but I just true. think it's odd that and convenient. I don't know. If you think about it, the part of his brain that was Swiss cheese, the whole might have been in his fear of heights. Because if you have a fear of heights, it could be instinctual or it could be a learned fear. But either way, it's stored in your brain. So that part of his mind might have been Swiss cheese. And then he got it back. I probably wouldn't want that back. I think it's a good thing to be afraid of things that can kill you. That's why you don't do them. Well, right. Unless you're the superhero, which Sam is. The last time we watched the episode, we put the closed captioning on because I think we had noticed everything we were going to notice in the four other times we watched it. So the last time we had the closed captioning on, there's a part where Clifford Vargas in the Denver circus, he says that Shari has been pining over him since he left. And it's actually spelled the same way as Sherry Headley, who we just interviewed on our last episode, but she was in the last episode that we covered too. So it's pretty cool. I don't know if that's the burger theory coming out, but it was the same exact spelling. And it's kind of a unique spelling considering like to use that. And and I know I only noticed in the closed captioning, but still. When you type her first name into a search engine, she comes right up. So there's not that many of them out there. Or they just said, we'll just throw her name in here. But that was pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's hard for me to say her name. I'm used to saying Sherry, but she says it's like Harry or Barry. Sherry. Hmm. Hmm. Um, another thing uh, we noticed was if you watch that scene when they first get to the circus, there's a background actor in the foreground who's waving at nobody. Yeah, he's like trying to get the attention of Eva, I think. And he's just like waving and nobody's looking at him. And then he just keeps walking. You ever do that? Like wave at somebody and like they don't notice you and you feel like you're silly for waving and you kind of get embarrassed and stop waving? Well, I think that's probably better than someone that waves at you and you wave back and you realize they're not waving to you. Oh, that's worse. Yeah. So. What is that? As a species, we don't go, oh yeah, sorry, I made a mistake. We're just like, oh, we are the not smartest person in the whole world. I think that's called embarrassment. Embarrassment? Maybe. If somebody waves at me, I always look behind me first before I wave back. I think it depends on if I know them. If I know them, I'll wave back. But Or the gender and the attractiveness. Be like, hey, I know you're waving to somebody behind me, but I'm waving at you. So after talking about this episode for quite a while, what are your final thoughts on it? I liked it. 
was good. I mean, I like most of them. I don't think there's one, actually, I don't think there's been one that I've like, I don't like this episode, but this one was good. I, Scott Bakula and tights. Not every episode has to be life or death, even though this one was. It just didn't seem like it. Yeah. Almost like, well. You knew he was going to save her. Right. If he didn't, that would have been a weird ending. So even though it was real Jeopardy, it was like, he wasn't trying to stop a murder. He wasn't trying to save the world. He was just trying to catch a girl. And aren't we all? Uh-huh. Well, as promised earlier, I had the opportunity to speak with Tommy Thompson, the writer of this episode and many more, and also co-executive producer of Quantum Leap. He was one of the people that made this show happen and made it as special as it is. This has a spoiler level of Leaping In Without a Net, Leap of Faith, Miss Deep South, Future Boy, Southern Comforts, Heart of a Champion, Play Ball, Moments to Live, Nowhere to Run, Killing Time, Deliver Us from Evil, Promised Land, Blood Moon, and The Beast Within. So basically all the episodes that Tommy Thompson wrote. So if you're like me and you haven't seen any episodes past where we are right now in the podcast, you might want to skip this part. I really enjoyed it and I think you will too. So here it is, my interview with Tommy Thompson. Tommy Thompson got his start writing for episodes of series such as Out of This World and B.L. Stryker. In 1992, he wrote episodes of a short-lived series called Tequila and Benetti for his Quantum Leap boss, Donald P. Belisario. While on Quantum Leap, Tommy wrote and became the co-executive producer of the series. Episodes he wrote included Leaping Without a Net, Leap of Faith, Miss Deep South, Future Boy, Southern Comforts, Heart of a Champion, Play Ball, Moments to Live, Nowhere to Run, Killin' Time, Deliver Us from Evil, Promised Land, and Blood Moon. After Quantum Leap went off the air, he wrote episodes of The Pretender, as well as episodes of Sequest, Viper, Dark Angel, Odyssey 5, and Kyle XY. And he was also the executive producer of The Dead Zone, starring Anthony Michael Hall. Mr. Thompson, welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast. Me? You talking to me? Yes. <laughs> hey, Albie, how's it going, man? Thanks. It's nice to, it's nice to know that there's... Um still people out there that are interested in the series. Oh, we love Quantum Leap, and we love talking about Quantum Leap, and uh, the more we can find out about it, the better. And we are just now up to your first episode that you wrote for Quantum Leap. Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember, was this the second or third season? Second season. Second season, okay, because I knew it was, you know, when I um, I had written for Burt Reynolds, I had worked for Burt. This is how, do you want me to tell you how it sort of came about? Yes, I, I want to know everything, how you got involved with Quantum Leap. Okay, and... well, I was working, like I was, we were talking earlier, I grew up in, in South Florida, and um, when I was um, 15 years old, I, uh, I had a rock and roll band in high school, and I really was thinking that music was, that was where I was going to go. It was like one of those things where, Nobody in my family was in any kind of entertainment or show business, but since I was like little, I just felt like I got to get into show business. I didn't know where it was going to be. I didn't know how it was going to happen. And, and actually, it did take a number of turns before I finally settled where I did. But um, at that time, I just started this rock and roll band, and we were actually making some money. We were just teenagers, but we were, we were okay. We were pretty good, and we were getting out there and um and i was excited about that and then uh on june 
I think it was, I forget the date, June 7th, I think it was 1973, I had tickets, it was the last day of school, 10th grade, and I had tickets with some buddies to go see the Eagles that night, and I was going out with this girl that I'd been after for a long time, and so we went surfing after school, because that's what we did, we surfed and we we played music, so uh, we were on our way home, and uh, we got hit by a drunk driver, and just tore our car to pieces, and um, I was in the back seat, and at the time I was bending over to light a cigarette, which I shouldn't have been smoking anyway, but I was, and um, I hit my head on the back of the seat and I broke my neck. So I, uh, they pulled me out of this car and um, my life was uh, over as I knew it. I was paralyzed from my neck down. They gave me the last rites. They took me to the to the hospital. I was in the emergency room and they, I remember the priest praying over me and me thinking like, wait a minute, I'm not going anywhere. I don't know why this guy's doing this, but it was real. It was surreal. It was like out of body, that kind of thing they talk about. And I felt like I was sort of up above it, watching it all. And um, so anyway, I, I didn't die, which was like, you know, a surprise to everybody, but I was um, really in bad shape. I was uh, paralyzed from my neck down and I had no feeling. And so everything I dreamed about, everything I'd wanted to do in my life was gone at the age of 15 and um they ended up uh ended up going away to the hospital in in georgia which was the only rehabilitation hospital they could find it was the end of the vietnam war so i ended up in this four-man ward with these three african-american vietnam vets and um lived there with those guys for a year and uh it was a real interesting sort of coming of age. Someday I'll write that story because it was um, it was surreal. It was just, it was like you can't even imagine. It was this old hospital that Franklin Roosevelt had built in Warm Springs, Georgia. It, was a, it had been a polio hospital when he was president. And he, ran, he basically ran the country out of this place. They called it the Little White House. And it was beautiful. It was up in the mountains and it was, um, it was, a, it was like idyllic, the this, this setting. But it was a a growing up time for me. It was, you know, so I was there for a year trying to get myself back together. I mean, I basically came out of there. I got, I regained a lot of feeling in my, I regained all the feeling in my body and I got a lot of movement back and I, but I came out of there in a wheelchair and um, came back to high school the next year and just had nothing in common with any of my friends. It was just like I had left. I, I traveled to another planet, lived there sort of, changed and then come back to my old home and didn't really know or want to be there anymore and it was just so it was all really weird for me and different i i ended up getting out of high school and and i i ended up with this little bit of money out of this car accident we'd had i got a little bit of a of a settlement out of it so now i'm like you know I got married. I married my high school sweetheart, so we're 19. We're married. We have a little baby, and I have no direction in my life. I have nothing. I'm sort of still getting around. I'm getting around then on crutches, and I'm I'm feeling a little better, but I'm still definitely disabled. You know, I'm like that's that's going to be my my life. You know, I don't I don't know how I'm going to move forward in this life. So so I've got this little bit of money and I read in the paper that Burt Reynolds is building a theater, a dinner theater in my town. And it's like, what? Why is this guy building? He was the biggest star in the world then. It was during Smokey and the Bandit. I read about this theater he's going to build and I finagle my way into an investor's party. They're, they're having a, a party because they wanted some local people to invest. So I get my wife and I get invited somehow to this party and there's Bert and like we meet and something 
clicked. I mean, he li- he seemed to like me immediately, and 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 of course he was parental, so there was nothing not to like about that. And he said, "Well, wh- why are you here?" And I said, "Well," and I told him sort of a little bit about what had happened to me, and I said, "I have this money, but I just don't. I, I want to invest it, but I don't want to just be an investor." I-, I go, "I need a job." I said, "I need I need something to do." I need you know, and and he was just he sort of laughed, and he and he went, "Okay." He goes, "What do you do?" And I said, "I, I can do anything." You know, I just was lying through my teeth, and he said, "All right." He goes, "Do you know anything about lighting?" And I said. Yeah, every, yeah, sure. Everything I know, everything about lighting. He goes, all right. Well, I'll hire you as my lighting board operator at the theater if you want to do that. And I said, good, let's do it. You know, so I was like so excited. Now I'm like, I'm in. You know, I'm 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 inside this theater, which is just like maybe the most unique theater of its kind at the time because it's run by the number one box office star in the world, and he's bringing all his friends from Hollywood down to this basically a truck stop in South Florida and they're going to do these plays they're going to do these classic comedies and musicals and and like nobody's ever seen this and where I come from and I knew nothing about what I was doing so uh, I sort of was learning on the job and and the, the very first play we did was start Sally Fields and it was you know it was it only had like 15 light cues so it was pretty easy for me to get by and then of course, the third play we did starred Martin Sheen, who had just come back from doing Apocalypse Now, so he was like completely out of his mind, <laughs> and Julie Kavner, and it had like 200 lighting cues, and it was it was impossible for me to do because I only had really good use of one hand, and I was putting pencils in my teeth, running these dimmer switches, and nobody knew what I was doing up there, but I was terrified, and Bert had directed this play, and I couldn't get this lighting cue right at the end of the first act, and... I was panicked, you know, and he's down there and he's yelling at me and, and the whole crew's there and we're, we're they're waiting for me to get this cue. And so now I have a decision to make. I, I, I'm thinking to myself, I can either just leave. I can walk out the back door, get in my car, drive away and never come back. Or I can just figure this out and get this done. And luckily I figured it out and I, and I got the, I got the cue and it was, you know, everything was cool. So I ended up working there for a couple of years, just met the most, just tons of amazing, talented people. And Bert sort of became my sort of mentor. And, you know, he used to bring people to meet me. And, you know, he'd come over to my booth and say, hey, come over, I want you to meet somebody. And, you know, I'd walk over to his little private booth and there'd be Howard Cosell or there'd be Farrah Fawcett or, there, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, Dolly Parton. I met, like, all these people, like, one-on-one. And it was just exciting. And it was like, okay, now I know I've got to get in this business because I just, every time I would shake somebody's hand, I would just get electrified by it, you know. And, I, and But I was like, how am I going to get out of this truck stop? So I, I, um, I met Charles Nelson Riley was sort of the in-house acting teacher. And people don't know that Charles is, you know, they know Charles that people that know him, they know him from game shows and they know him from some kind of silly stuff that he did. He did, but he was an amazing teacher and an amazing director. He directed a lot of Broadway dramas and he was just a very talented guy. And he, uh, and he was running this acting program that was connected to Florida state university. So every, every year for a year, they'd bring down like 15 acting students from Florida state, which is where Bird had gone to college and they would basically become slave labor for this dinner theater for a year. They would live there, and they would work there, and they would never leave there. They would just do these plays, and they would build sets. And every once in a while, they'd get to audition for a little part, and they'd get a part in a play, and it was sort of their payback. 
and it was a great program. It was like, it was beautiful because everybody won, you know? So they let me audit their acting classes. I said, you know, I, I really think I could be an actor or I'd like to at least find out if I could be an actor. So they were like, cool, you can sit on these classes if you want. And if you want to work up scenes to do and we have time, you know, and so that was cool. So I used to sit sort of off to the side and after the shows were over and I'd watch these acting classes, which wouldn't start until midnight and they'd go until daylight. And it was just, it was just nothing but the beauty of it was there was, it was nothing but creative energy, like all the time from, from everybody. And, um, and I, and I found that I just, I loved it. I just, I couldn't get enough of it. So anyway, I did, I, I'd worked up a scene from the book Catcher in the Rye, which was really my first writing. I sort of adapted this scene out of Catcher in the Rye into a one person little monologue. And I, and I did it and I did it for Bert and for Charles and, and for the rest of the class. So anyway, Bert and Charles were leaving that night to go back to California and uh, they left after the class. So the next day I'm running the lights and the woman that runs the theater comes in to see me and she says, she says, well, they were very impressed with you. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, on the way to the airport, Bert asked Charles who he thought the actor in the class was. And Charles said, the kid on the crutches. And when I heard that, it was just like, okay, you know, if they believe in me, I, I can, maybe there's something I can do with this. So I started writing stuff for myself to do in these, these acting, these classes. And it was fun and I was pretty good at it, but it really became obvious to me real quick that because of my disability, that it was going to be so limiting for me. I was just like, I was never going to become a mainstream actor with the situation that I found myself in. So I, I went home and I, I found a book in the library about script writing. And I, I would go home at night and just write scenes just to see if I could do it, see if I could do it. And this went on for months and months and months. And, and I would write scenes and I'd throw them away. And then finally I wrote this little half hour script and I, um, I thought it was pretty good. And I gave it to Bert's manager guy named David Gershenson and I asked David, I said, listen, would you just read this? And if it stinks, tell me. And I just need to know the truth because, you know, I got some decisions to make here and I, I just don't know what to do. And if I'm no good at it, I don't want to fool myself into thinking I am. And so he read it and he, he called me at home, which I thought was cool. And he said, you know, he goes, this is really good. He goes, you could make a living doing this. And that was all I needed to know. And I quit my job at the theater, which was cool with Bert. And I, um, I had two kids at that time, two little girls. And we sold our house about two weeks later, and we uh, drove to California. And that's, that's how I got to, to California. So that's sort of, the, sort of the backstory of how I ended up from Florida to, to California. And then I got out here, and I got a job on a really bad sitcom, really bad sitcom. But it was... It was um, it was fun because it was me and a guy named Mike Scully who were writing this thing, and I and Mike ended up running The Simpsons for many years and uh, went on to do a lot of amazing things. But I wrote a one-hour script that got to the executives at Universal, and they responded to it, and it got me an agent, and they called and they said, "Would you come in for an overall meeting with us?" And I went in and I met with these guys, and it must have been every executive at Universal Studios that I met with that day. And they basically said to me, you know, we've got a bunch of shows we're producing. Is there anything that, that you're, you might be interested in, in working up some story pitches for? And I had just seen Quantum Leap. I had just sort of seen it in the, the last couple of weeks. And I liked it because I liked the whole idea of what, what the show was about is 
if you could go back and change one moment in your life, how it would change everything in the rest of your life. And I always had thought about, you know, if I had just not gotten a car that day, you know, how my whole life would have been different. And that had always played in my mind that what if scenario. And so this was perfect. This was like, I, I think I could get in touch with what I need to get in touch with to write the show. And so they set up a meeting with um, with Don Belisario and, and the writing staff. And I went in and I pitched five ideas and they responded to almost everything. And um, it was funny because they, they really didn't commit to buying anything, but I knew they liked me. And, and uh, on the way out the door, Don said to me, he said, do you have anything else? Anything else that you just didn't pitch? Any loose thread of an idea. And I said, well, I have, I have an idea about a circus thing. And I threw out the name of the family, the Flying Panzinis. And I don't even know where I came up with that name, but he started laughing. He thought the name was funny. And he went, that's great. He goes, let's do that one. And I was like, okay. So I worked up a story really quick because they were in a production bind at that time. They needed a script really bad. So I worked up a story and they liked the story and they said, go write it because we need this draft in a week. Well, I didn't know that was like, you know, I didn't know if he wrote a script in three days or three months at that point. So I said, well, okay, I'll get you a draft in five days. So I did. And, um, I turned it in and they called me the next day and they asked me if I wanted to be on the show. So that was like how it started. It just was really fast and sort of that dream thing, you know, where you dream about if this could go as well as it could go, how would I want this to play out? And that's really how it happened. And, um, and that's how I wrote that first episode. Wow. That is insane. Yeah, it is insane. Did all those ideas you pitched eventually get made? I think three or four of them did. Um, they, they might've all become different, uh, versions of, of things, but you know, what was cool is, was that Chris Rupenthal was really, he was sort of the head writer behind Don and Deborah, uh, his wife at the time, Deborah Pratt. And, and Chris was really kind to me and, you know, he, uh, very encouraging. And, and I, I, uh, I just came in and became a writing monster for those guys. I, I, I wrote a lot of uh, material pretty quick for them, but I do remember the excitement of that first episode, Sleeping Without a Net, is uh, the excitement for me was the first day we shot. You know, now I had an office on the lot at Universal. I had a golf cart that they gave me that was my own. And I used to just, you know, during my lunch hour, I would just drive around Universal. I would drive on the back lot. I would go back to, you know, I remember taking my little girls and climbing into the psycho house and eating lunch on the floor with them and, you know, I would just do all the fun things that you would want to do if, if you had access to the studio, you know. And um, I remember the first day we shot that episode, I went down and it was like, I, I think I cried. I might have cried even because I, they had taken over the biggest soundstage on the Universal lot, which is gigantic. And they had recreate. they had built a circus. They had built a 1950s or 60s circus inside this soundstage and I went down there and I and there it was the trapeze the the clowns the net everything there's Scott in his outfit there's all the actors and I thought I man I just thought this stuff up you know this came out of my head and here it is the, you know and it was really for me it was the, my golden age of of my television career because you know it was before I became a showrunner you know later I ended up running series and it, the whole it changes because you then you got all kinds of responsibilities and but at this point 
I was just a writing machine, and it was the most fun I ever had that first season and the second season. You know, when I started producing the episodes and, and casting and doing all editing and all the stuff that you get to do when they start to trust you. And that was the first time I went down to a, a soundstage and saw my imagination come to life. And, um, and I remember Scott coming up to me, and it was the first time I'd met Scott, and telling me that he was terrified of heights mm-hmm. and that he was like, you know, he, he wished somebody had run this by him first. <laughs> And I said, well, I'm sorry, dude. And later, I remember later, I would actually, you know, after a while, we would start to try to put Scott into uncomfortable situations just to watch <laughs> squirm. And I remember I, when I wrote Miss Deep South and I had him in the bathing suit contest and I went down to the set and he's in a one-piece bathing suit with high heels. And he just looked at me and he went, really? He goes, really? <laughs> it's, it's come to this? And I was like, hey, I go, we're, we're working on one where you're a monkey. So just enjoy this, you know? So uh, so we had so much fun, and he was the best. You know, I've worked with a lot of actors and a lot of, you know, big-time actors, and Scott still, he and Dean are still the nicest two guys I ever worked with. They were just, just great down-to-earth guys, and I'm sure Scott's still like that. How did you go from a uh, writer to, what was it, a co-producer to a producer or something like that? Well, a lot of it's, you know, a lot of that is built into your contract, so... Um, a lot of it is just, you know, in lieu of a lot of money, we're going to call you something else. Mm. Uh, when you're a co-producer, you're still basically just a writer. It's just, they give you a title bump, uh, every time your contract gets renewed. And, and the, the thing for me that was weird is that everybody seemed to love my work, but Don kept me on these 12 week contracts. So every time I would think I was really motoring along. My contract would come up for renewal. And of course, it would always come up when I had a script due. And I would go to Don and I would say, you know, can't we make this a longer term thing? And he goes, well, let me read this next script. And I always felt like I was <laughs> constantly auditioning for this guy. And um, and Don was a hard guy. I mean, Don had a reputation as a pretty tough guy to deal with. And he and I got into it. I mean, I was there. I'd been there about two months. And he and I got into it in a staff meeting. You know, there was probably 10 people in this little office, and he didn't like something that I'd written. And instead of just giving me a note, he got angry and he threw the script at me. He threw it at me across the room, and I ducked it and hit the wall behind me. And I had, you know, I, I, don't, I don't play that with anybody, even at that point in my career. So I um, I got really upset. The meeting broke up. I I went back to my office and I sat and Chris Rubenthal and Paul Brown, who were we were basically the writing staff at that time. Those guys came into my office and I was I I had tears in my eyes and they were just I was angry. I was I was these were tears of anger and I uh, I said I go I go I'm not going to put up with this. I go I don't I don't care if he fires me. I'm going to go in there and confront him right now. And they were like don't do that. Just just sit here, just just let it calm down and let it go because you won't win. And I said, I don't care if I win. I just won't be able to ever look at myself in the mirror if I don't stand up to this guy because what he did to me was wrong. And so I went into Don's office and he was on the phone. I was sort of standing in his doorway and he, he gave me, you know, like a, gave me the one minute sign and he finished his phone call and he said, come on in. And I came in and I said, I said, listen, I go, you can never treat me like that again. You can never do that to me ever again or, or I'll quit. 
you know, I don't care if this is my biggest break or I'll find another job, but you, you know, you can never treat me like that ever again. And he, and he apologized. He said, I'm sorry. He goes, my mother, my mother's real sick and I've been upset all day and I took it out on you and, and it won't happen again. And, and he and I were like tight from that point on the rest of my career there. Um, so it was one of those moments that where I, I did what I had to do and, and he fessed up to being wrong. And it was, and it really, it really bonded us, uh, for the rest of my time there. But I, um, you know, my big promotion on that show came in the third season or the fourth season when I became a co-exec producer on the show. And that was really funny. The way that happened was I was doing really well on the show. It was my, you know, I, I think I just got a longer term contract. I was making, making really good money. And the show was, had been nominated for best series. And it was about as high profile as a, as that type of series got that sci-fi kind of genre at the time. So suddenly I, I came into my office one day. I had this really cool bungalow office on the lot. And I came in and there was a guy named Dick Wolf was sitting on my couch in my office. Well, Dick Wolf created Law and Order and like all those series, you know, and he was the other big monster producer on the Universal lot at the time, him and Don. And I was like, what do you, I'd never met the guy, but I knew who he was. And I said, I said, hi, what are you doing in my office? You know, and he said, I came to offer you a job. And he'd come in the back door. He kind of snuck into the back door of my office. And he offered me a really, really good opportunity to come over and do a new show he was doing, run a new series he was doing. But he wanted me to come, like, now, like right away. He knew my contract. I could get out of my contract if I wanted to. And he offered me twice the money, and it was just, it was crazy. It was like, I couldn't believe this was happening. And I turned him down. I told him, I said, I couldn't. I couldn't leave Don. I said, if I left Don right now, Don would be, this show would be in so much trouble uh, just because they need me right now to, to get this material out. I said, I appreciate this opportunity. I may look back on this, which I did later and sort of regretted it. I said, but I can't, I can't, I can't leave the show. So he thanked me. He shook my hand. He, he walked back out the back door. So later that afternoon, my secretary calls me and she says, listen, I don't know what's going on, but Don and the whole staff are coming down the hall towards your office. So I just want to give you a heads up. So the door, my door bursts open. I'm sitting at my desk working and Don walks in and he got all the writers with him. And he goes, he starts, he points at me and he said, you see this? This is the, this is the guy. This is the guy right now. You are my new co-executive producer. He goes, look at this man right here. He goes, this is the kind of people I want on my show. So I was, I didn't know what was going on. I, I honestly was just dumbfounded. So he, he turns and he walks out, everybody follows him out. And at the time we had an, a director, a co-producer guy named Michael Zinberg, who'd done a lot of our episodes and Michael was standing there. I said, Michael, what, what just happened? And he said, he goes, Don and I went to lunch today and on the way out, Dick Wolf stopped by the table and Dick Wolf told him the story about what had happened today with me. He told me he offered me the moon, but then I turned him down. And Michael said, Don's chest kind of got real big, like he was real proud. And um, he goes, you made the right decision. He goes, Don, Don loves you like a son, you know? So that was how I got my biggest promotion ever in show business. It wasn't anything that I did. It was something I didn't do. I didn't take a job that was offered to me. So that was sort of a funny way, but that's how I ended up as an executive producer on, the, on Quantum Leap. Wow. Yeah, and then later, like the next year, uh, Spielberg came 
knocking and I couldn't walk away from that, <laughs> that opportunity. So that's, that's when I left quantum leap to go run Sequest for Steven Spielberg. But, uh, but you know, I, I I still think that I had a great time doing a show called The Pretender for four or five years with uh, with the guys that ran that series, and that was a lot of fun. And I had a lot of freedom and a lot of power on that show, and and I got to flex my creative muscles a lot on that show. But I I have never had more fun than I had doing Quantum Leap because it was just it was just a time in television when when we were we were just doing little movies every week you know i mean quantum leap is one of those rare vehicles where you're not doing the same show ever twice you know it, we we were making we were literally making little movies every week with with really no home base you know our our stories were always set in a different time a different location always a total different cast except for our two leads so it, you know, I can't even think of too many series that are that are like that now. You know, even today. And I still used to get goosebumps when that title sequence would come on. You know, the the music, Mike Post theme, and just all the the cuts and and the and I, I just still even when I hear it now, occasionally if I see a rerun or something, I get goosebumps because it was such a it was my you know it was the beginning of my career and. Um, I look back on it very, very fondly. A lot of shows come and go, but Quantum Leap's one of those things that's so special that I think it'll stick around for quite a long time. Well, you know, we used to have the third year, I think, they started those Quantum Leap conventions. Mm -hmm. And um, and we sort of, I mean, we even sort of laughed them off in the beginning as like, okay, there's a hardcore group of people and they, they like the show and they they want to get together and talk about it and that's fine. And then, I, you know, we ended up all going to one that they had here in and Hollywood, and there was, you know, there was three thousand people there, and and people from all over the world, people that had flown in from Australia and, and Europe, and and you know wanted to to meet us and as writers and talk to us, and and it was, it you know we all sort of looked at each other and went, wow, this is bigger, you know, because you can really lose sight of a show when you're you know basically hunkered down in a bunker creating this stuff and you're creating it so fast because you know i used to call it the monster is feeding and once you start filming a season it doesn't stop you know it just it starts to eat material and it never stops eating it until you're done and you know i laughed i hired my son-in-law as a writer when i was doing a show called the dead zone and he just now he's running a show called banshee now and I laugh because they do like 11, 12 episodes a year. <laughs> season. You yeah. know, we never did less than 22, 24. Yeah. So we, we were, you know, it was a grind. I mean, when you got, you know, when you got to 15 or 16, you were out of gas and you still had seven episodes to do it. And they had to be good, you know. So um, there was a burnout factor that happened. And, um, and then the show changed, you know, I mean, Chris left and Paul left and then Rick Oakey and, and Jill came in and, and it sort of took a turn and I didn't really enjoy it that last year I was there. I, I didn't like the direction the show was going and we were doing some things that were just odd and, but, and, but I understood because you just, you run out of things to do, you know, you run out of ideas at some point and, and you start to, I mean, all, you use up all the good ideas in the first couple of three or four years so if a show runs five years, that fifth year, you're really like, 
what you know what have I got in the bottom of the drawer that I that I wouldn't have used the first two years you know and then you know when I had a chance to go work for Steven and do Sequest which was the biggest money series at the time ever created that was just too too good to pass up even though it turned into a nightmare for me but um I love that show which which show uh Sequest I watched it uh, every week well I was so excited to do it because I was such a fan of Roy Scheider's but uh Roy came in and Roy wasn't a nice very nice man or he wasn't nice to me he didn't like me and I I really was to be honest looking back on it over my head I I I probably didn't have enough experience to be running a show like that and um and we had creative differences and I ended up leaving leaving pretty quick and um and then it just sort of did what it did but I did the first my only my only solace on that show was I wrote and produced maybe the first seven or eight episodes mm-hmm. and then I left and um, the show finally came on and the critics got to watch the whole season when they did their reviews and they wrote a review in the LA Times about the show and um, they loved the first six episodes and then they didn't like it so much after that. <laughs> so my agent framed that and sent it to me and said, hey, you know, at least you kind of knew what you were doing. You know, you kind of creatively did a good job, but I just didn't have, I didn't have the, um, and I never really developed, to be honest with you, that uh, ability to uh, placate people, studios, actors, agents. I just don't have it. I, I tell the truth and I'm, I don't suffer fools easily and I burned a lot of bridges at studios with mostly studio and and network executives because I just didn't think they knew what they were doing and I didn't like them telling me how to do my job so it uh it quickly it quickly uh would you know I would get more I would get work but I got I I worked only because I was good at, at I was a good writer uh not because I was a politician. I was I was a horrible politician when it came to that kind of stuff. But um but that's the problem with television is the more successful you get in television as a writer, the further away from writing you get. Because like I ended up running Sequest and if I wrote it was at night when I went home because, you know, I was picking costumes and I was casting and I was editing and I was looking at set drawings and I was trying to figure out at that time we were trying to figure out special effects cgi stuff you know which was that was the beginning of it we you know i remember spending months sitting in a room with these computer guys trying to figure out how to make it look like these guys were underwater you know Mm. and and it was just we were figuring it out as we went and i really had no interest in that stuff but that was my job so so like i mean the further the further you go up the ladder, the further away you get from what you really love to do and what you're probably, what I was probably best at, and that's sitting down and writing script. But um, but that's, you know, they, that's why they pay you so much money. That's why my agent used to remind me, I go, how can they abuse me like this? And he goes, do you see how much they're paying you? Because that's how they can abuse you. That's how they justify it, you know? And I was like, all right, I get it. But I can understand how it'd be more satisfying to be writing and being more creative than executive and making decisions. Oh, yeah. No, I was much happier writing. And, and that's why I say my my happiest memories in my career, which was like nearly 25 years, are of those first two years on Quantum. Because I just, I really was a writer. And that's all they wanted from me. All they want, they didn't. They didn't even ask me to go to casting sessions or anything. Then it was just, just keep these scripts coming, keep these scripts coming, and um, and those weren't you know those weren't easy 
stories to figure out in some respects because, you know, they were all juxtaposed with time and, and you had to come up with these little brushes with history and each, you know, each script had, had its own built-in challenges above and beyond even that basic storytelling you were going to tell with that story. Um, I seem to always end up, you know, when I did the dead zone, uh, I felt very similar to when I was doing quantum because it was, it was, they were almost like algebra problems, you know, trying to figure out these, these stories of, you know, okay, if I go back and I change this moment, how's that going to, how's that going to domino and change this for that character? And then how's that going to change the big picture in the world? And how can we do this? How can we make this really cool moment with, you know, uh, oh, the lights went out in New York and that was, had something to do with it or, you know, all these really cool little moments of, uh, of connection, because that's really what the show was all about was, was uh, that connection to, you know, changing one thing to change everything. So, but that's why people love the show. That was the challenge. You know, we would always say to each other, God, if it was easy, nobody would like the show, you know? <laughs> so, um, and I worked with really smart guys, the, you know, most of the guys I worked with went to Harvard. These guys, these were Ivy League guys, and I didn't, I didn't even go to college. So I used to laugh at those guys. We would sit in writers' meetings sometimes, and I would go, "Where did you guys go to school?" And they would go, you know, and they knew I knew where they went to school. And I go, "And what am I? I'm like a high school graduate, and we make the same money. What a beautiful world we live in." <laughs> and they, they would just look at me like, "Shut up," you know. <laughs> and uh, but I, I had so much fun with those guys, and and they were. They were smart, really smart guys. Uh, what did you do on the Dead Zone? I ran that show for a couple of years. Oh wow! Uh, with Michael Pillar, yeah. or is with it after? Michael, I, I was there when Michael died. Oh okay. Um, yeah, they brought me in to take over the show. Well, it was a, that was an interesting story too because they'd hired a, a showrunner and they brought me in to really run the writing staff, which that's what I wanted to do. I actually went in under the caveat that I was not going to run the show. I didn't have any interest in being the showrunner. I wanted to run the writing staff. So they brought me in and then I was there for a month and the guy that they'd hired to run the show freaked out in a pitch session with the network. We had to go pitch the new season, but I had come up with about 80% of the new season and in the room and we put it all together and then they said, okay, well, you're going to meet with the network tomorrow. I said, no, I'm not. I said, you guys, there's the showrunner right there. And I said, he's going to go pitch it. I'm not, the, I don't want to be the showrunner. I told you guys, I'm not good at this. So they were like, oh, okay. And so they went down the next day to pitch this to USA. Well, this guy just went, fell in the toilet during this pitch, this mm -hmm. guy they hired to run the show. So they canceled the meeting. They called me at home that night. They said, it was a disaster you need to meet with USA tomorrow and pitch the new season. And then, so I went down the next day, pitched the new season. They loved it. And then they, the guy quit the next day and I <laughs> took over the show. So, so I ended up exactly where I didn't want to be running that series. But Michael was very sick and, and, and then, you know, so I felt a real obligation to, uh, to do that show as well as we could do it for him. And, and then during the course of that year, he, he passed away. And it was really sad. It was just, it was a hard, it was a hard, hard time. And I love those guys. The guy named Lloyd Segan, uh, Sean Pillar, his son, mm -hmm. uh, was on the show. And um, actually, those guys hired me. I'm writing a pilot script for those guys right now. So awesome. it's, uh, yeah, because I, I actually retired like two years ago. I, I had just, I couldn't do it anymore. I was doing my paintings and I was, I was playing music again. And I was, I have a granddaughter now. And, 
I was just really, I just didn't care anymore. I just didn't, I had just done it. You know, it, you can only, I mean, there's very few artists. I'm fascinated now by the idea of true inspiration. And it's an interesting thing. If you look at, you know, like I'm a music is like everything in my life. It's, it's more important to me than anything except my family. And if you look at musicians, there's a lot of great musicians, but they're only really great for a short period of time. You know, they write three great records and then they, it just leaves them. I mean, there's, there's a few that, that have lasted over time, but inspiration is a really fleeting and uh, ethereal kind of thing, and it and it comes and it goes. And um, I was able to keep it alive, sometimes artificially, but but um, I was really able to keep it uh, as a force for me to make a living for over 20 years. But after that, I just you know I did a show called Kyle X Y, which was the last show I worked on before I quit really and just said I don't want to do it anymore and that was a bad experience for me and I just said you know what I just don't get it anymore and I'm not I can't fake it anymore I I, I was faking it and I was just dragging myself in every day and I said I have other things I want to do you know with my with my life I I'd made money and and I was you know I didn't need the money anymore so it was I decided that would be it but then these I took my pension, started painting, and then, of course, these guys call me and say, would you write a script? And I said, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, right, I'm writing a new script right now. Uh, looking forward to hearing about it. when. It, yeah, it, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to figuring it out. Uh, you know, that's sort of the story for me as far as my how I ended up in the business. Okay, I have uh, some questions. I had a question about the dead zone. The number 47 always showed up in there. Was that a writer thing? 47? You know what? I, that, I don't think I came into the show till seasons down the line because i don't remember anything about the 47 okay uh, just yeah. a weird question because it was uh, that number popped up in every episode so i wasn't sure i know a lot of the guys on the next generation did it so it might have been a michael pillar thing it, it probably was a pillar thing but uh he was an interesting guy and just you know really inspirational for me and i was excited to work with him um i was sorry when he passed but um i went to his memorial and there were so many great writers and 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 um basically sci-fi people there that were telling these amazing stories about him so it was a it was a really beautiful memorial he he seemed like a generally nice person really nice kind of you know uh really uh demanded a lot out of his writers and his staff but but that was okay. I, I always liked it when people expected, you know, had high expectations of the work, and he did. But he turned it over to his son. His his son is doing a really good job now, and has a show called Haven that he that he's doing. And um, and Sean's a really 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 nice young man, and um, I enjoyed working with him too. Cool. You worked on Odyssey Five. Yes, I did work on uh, Odyssey Five. It was uh, that was an interesting. Uh, uh, time too, because it was a fun show. It was a really interesting concept, and I enjoyed working with. I had worked with um, on uh, Pretender with uh, Carlos Cotto, and then Manny Cotto had created Odyssey Five, and and Manny hired me and Tracy Torme to do that show. Yeah, I did. The, I did the. I think it only did one year. Yeah, my big question for that is: Did you guys know? where the series was going to end up if it didn't get canceled. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, Manny did, but he didn't ever tell us, or, mm. or he didn't really ever lay it out for us. And um, uh, But I think it had to do with, I think it had something to do with time travel and 
and God, and it was real spiritual, whatever it was. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, Manny and I had a, again, we, you know, me and my, you know, I don't, I don't like people messing with my work and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Manny and I sort of had a, a falling out in the middle of that show over a episode I wrote that Peter Weller ended up directing and um, everybody loved it. He, Peter loved the episode so much that he picked it to be the one he was going to direct. And uh, and I really worked really hard on the on the script. And then um, and of course he came in and started rewriting it. And and I just I sort of lost my mind at that point. And uh, and uh, that was sort of the end of the beginning for me on that show. But it, it, I I sort of we sort of knew from the ratings that that show wasn't going to have a See its potential, but uh, but it was fun. It was a, it was a it was an interesting concept, you know. You've been uh, involved in a lot of shows with interesting concepts, and mostly yeah. mostly genre shows, which is awesome. It's like it seems to be your forte. Yeah, but it, it but it's completely by accident because it's not really where my heart was ever at. You know, I mean, my favorite writer is Horton Foote. My favorite movie is Tender Mercies. I wanted to write, that was where my writing, where I wanted to go as a writer. I wanted to write really simple American human, uh, rural kind of stories. And then I ended up in these sci-fi genres, but that was the beauty of quantum was you were inside a genre, but you could write all kinds of stuff, you know? I mean, I could write a story like Killing Time, you know, which is like one of my favorite uh, quantums that I wrote. And that's basically a little, you know, uh, dark murder mystery set in the country. Uh, you know, it's Bonnie and Clyde. It's, uh, it's you know, it's, 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 it's genre, but it's not, you know, and, and that was, that was the beauty of, of, uh, of quantum is because we were all so different. The writers, you know, if you look at Paul Brown's scripts, Paul Brown's scripts were always very mystery oriented, always really, I mean, that's why you want a couple Edgars for the show. And they were always really sort of high concepty mystery. And, and they always had sort of an element of, of Dashiell Hammond kind of thing going, uh, Chris Rupenthal's scripts were always really smart and and sort of uh, uh, I don't know you know really kind of high concepty too. My scripts were always or basically always really sort of character driven uh, pieces. You know, uh, a beauty pageant in the South, uh, a legless Vietnam vet in a rehab hospital. You know, mine were always sort of driven by character instead of concept and um but we all had a place on that series which was fantastic you know and that that was why we sort of all we never got in each other's way and then we always supported each other really well that was, and i think that's why don sort of liked uh, and then don would write these you know oh you know i want to turn you on i was talking i i had dinner the other night a new year's eve party at my house and we have the same people eight of us every year for the last 20 years and and one of them is a guy named Joe Napolitano. Oh, director. Yeah, Joe directed a ton of quantum. Yeah. And I want to give you his email address because he'd be happy to talk to you. That would be amazing. Yeah, Joe's, oh my God, do, do you know what Joe's done besides, I mean, Joe was first assistant AD, first assistant director on Scarface. He was uh, first assistant director on the Pope of Greenwich Village, on the Kingfisher. He, I mean, he's the amazing film career. And then, you know, tons of television 
But uh, Joe directed uh, a bunch of the stuff that I did. Uh, I don't think he directed Leave It Without a Net, but he did Heart of a Champion. I yeah. did I did a little uh, mini uh, Tommy Thompson marathon last couple days, and I noticed well, he directed a bunch of yours. Somebody asked to. <laughs> yeah, and then I and then of course everywhere I went, Joe came and directed for me. You know, and cool. And, uh, yeah, we worked really good together, and he's just a brilliant. He's got a brilliant eye, and he's you know he's. He's just real creative and, and a cool guy to work with. So, yeah, he's. I'm sure he's got a lot of things he could talk to you about down the line. That would be awesome. I would love to talk yeah, to him. But, yeah, it's, it, I don't know how I ended up in this sci-fi <laughs> genre thing, but it, and it just feeds on itself. You know, that's, that's what you get to be known as. So that's the jobs offers that you get. But, you know, for me, I was always like, why won't somebody just, you know, I'd just love to write for Picket Fences or I'd love to write, mm-hmm. you know, for some other little show that doesn't have a... A sci-fi bent to it, but uh, nowadays that seems to be the thing. Everything has to have something special about it. Like, different. oh yeah, right, right. Well, I'm surprised. You know, I'm, I'm surprised that they haven't done Quantum again in some way, shape, or form. You know, you could really update it and make it just as interesting because there's, uh, you know, I think I think that enough time has gone past that you could do it with a younger cast, a younger version, and and make it a real hip show. But um, They'll do it. Somebody will do it somewhere. I'm hoping it'll happen one day about the time we're finished going through all the original episodes so we can keep going. Yeah, exactly. Then you'll have a new, some new, uh, some new uh, binge watching to do. That would be great. Everybody seems to want to, but it's just a matter of getting it done, I guess. Yeah, I don't find, you know, for me personally, the binge watching thing, I did it. I watched The Wire that way because I hadn't watched The Wire and everybody would watch The Wire. And for me, maybe it's because I, I've been in the inside of creating TV shows and series like that that I don't think shows are meant to be watched like that. Because mm. if, if you watch them, I, when I was watching The Wire, I had the sense that I was watching the same episode over and over and over again, you know? And, and then I realized, well, it's supposed to be a week gone by between these episodes. So there's, you know, you have to write a little bit in a way for people to catch back up. But if you watch them back to back like that, you don't get that sense of missing any time so it feels repetitive to me so maybe i mean maybe people are creating series now to be watched that way i don't know maybe like house of cards uh, yeah, things specific like that the, i just actually watched the series called the missing which i really enjoyed on stars it was really good as a bbc i think sort of you know one season mystery and and i i sort of enjoy that format of like one season and then it's over kind of deal you know makes um, it more special almost yeah, and it, and it's like you know, it's like okay, I, I'm not going to commit, I'm not going to have to commit, you know, my entire next part of my life to this, but uh, and and then I can sort of watch them as I want to watch them on, on these sort of on demand channels, which is, you know, everything is since we did Quantum, think about think about how the world is different now. Mm. You know, I mean, we didn't have we didn't have the internet really to that extent then. You know, any research we did, we really was, you know, we had to go look, hunt it down. And so, you know, now it's the whole process is different. But but I look very fondly on those days. Can we go through the episodes you're credited for writing and just uh, give me a little... Yeah, if I, I'll give you what I can remember about it. Okay. We're talking, of course, about Leaping Without a Net. Yeah, that really, like I said, came from like the funny name of the family and Don laughed and said, go develop a story around that. And I think I went home and watched like every circus movie trying to figure out what to do. And and the funny thing about my career as a writer is I had I always had a 
I have still have had a, a really sort of a difficult relationship with my father growing up. And um, at some point, like I'd written maybe 10 quantums. My wife was like, did you ever notice that a lot of your shows are about fathers and sons mm-hmm. or fathers and daughters or it, that sort of parental thing? And I said, no. And I looked back and they were. And it's so it was subconsciously, I, I found that a lot of my, a lot of my stories had to do with that. They were, they were healing stories, you know, like, mm-hmm. like people healing uh, things that had gone down over time in, in families and stuff. So it's interesting how you can sort of psychoanalyze your own writing after a given period of time. But I look back at a lot of those stories and a lot of them had that sort of same theme. I noticed that with Future Boy and Playball. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they all had that sort of uh, broken relationship, sort of wanting to heal kind of thing. And I'm sure that came out of some deep, you know, need or desire myself to heal myself and my, my own relationships uh, with my father and stuff. But, um, but that's how I worked it out, I guess, you know, cause I never, you know, a lot of people out here, a lot of people in the world have psychoanalysts and they go therapy and I never did. I, I wrote it all out. You know, it was, I played it out in, in these, uh, make believe characters and, and stuff and, and worked a lot of stuff out of my own head, uh, that way. But, um, yeah, a lot of those. A lot of those are. If you look at them, they're they're kind of similar in, in what's going down. Tell me about Leap of Faith. Well, Leap of Faith wasn't one. Didn't end up being one of my favorite episodes, but it was. You know, it was another. A lot of those stories would start with us sitting in a room with a you know pens and and index cards, just coming up with things that Sam could become. You know like a boxer or a, or a, a killer or a bathing suit model or a priest. So we'd always had priests up there and, and priests sort of, you know, people would pass it by and pass it by. And finally priests kept coming around and it was like, okay, you got to go develop a story about Sam as a, as a young priest. And, and then I, you know, I was always, I'm a big sports guy. And, and I thought, well, if I can connect this to boxing and then I really liked we cast a young actor in that that I really liked, a guy named Danny Nucci, mm-hmm. who, who played the young kid in that part. And I was really taken by Danny, and so I enjoyed writing for him. And um, you know, it was just it was just another episode that you you try to find. The thing I remember about that episode, Jimmy Whitmore, I think, directed that, and Jimmy was one of our go-to directors and a great guy. Um, his father was James Whitmore, a very famous actor, and Jimmy had been an actor, had been in. Uh, a lot of TV shows in the 70s. But um, there's a train sequence in that at the, at the conclusion of that where he's supposed to get run over by, the priest is supposed to get run over by this train. And, and I remember we, we found this train, but they wouldn't let us run the train over like five miles an hour. So I was like, how are we going to... How are we going to create any drama of this train bearing down on this poor man if, it, if it's only going five <laughs> miles an hour? You know, it was like the scene from uh, what's the Austin, Austin Powers. Powers? Yeah, yeah, where mm-hmm. he's trying to run over the guy with the steamroller. <laughs> it, it, it became that thing, you know, where so we had to sort of do a lot of editing cheats mm-hmm. and we had to speed the film up and and it was just that. I just remember that that was the my memory of that episode was the nightmare of trying to make it look. Uh, like that train was going to do any damage to anybody at all. So that's 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 sort of my memory of that episode. That's funny. It worked because it looked like it was going to do something. Yeah, well, you know, it's magic. It's Hollywood magic. Yeah. 
Miss Deep South. Yeah, that was fun. That was, you know, again, I'm from the South. A lot of my family is our Southern. And, and it was just, you know, I also always liked comedy in my, my stuff. And that was a great chance to do Sam. And it's just the, one of the most uncomfortable leaps of his life, you know. And, you know, just just the whole talent show sequence where he's doing the Carmen Miranda <laughs> number and with Dean and mm-hmm. I remember shooting that and how much fun those guys had doing that and that you know Scott was Scott was a musical guy he'd been in musical theater as a young man and and how much he enjoyed anytime we could give him music to do he he liked it and um and it, and, and it got to the point where if you could give him a story that had some connection to reality and had some meaning and and a payoff he didn't mind doing the outrageous stuff you know because he knew that that was part of the the appeal of the uh you know when you did your oh boy leap in it better be something compelling to bring people back you know so he didn't mind doing that stuff but i have very fond memories my my memory of that is to go is going down and watching the photo shoot where they were doing the, um, they're sort of in the middle of the story. There's a compilation of photos mm-hmm. where, they're, where the girls are all lined up and, and they're holding each other up in the air and stuff. And I was there that day when they were shooting that and just how much fun and how much trouble the crew gave Scott that day. <laughs> it, was, it was very funny. And how much, how much, how uncomfortable that one piece woman's bathing suit was. <laughs> <laughs> he seemed like a good sport about it, though. Completely. Mm. He, I, I don't remember in my time there him ever calling or getting a call from the set saying Scott won't do this, you know, yeah. ever. Yeah. So, you know, and he could have thrown his hands up at a few things and said, you know, I'm not wearing a diaper, you know, <laughs> you know? and, uh, but, uh, but he didn't, he, he was, he, he knew what we were doing and, and he signed on and it was popular. So, you know, uh, what was the process like for you, uh, doing a story, like breaking a story like that? Because usually an episode will have like, he's a, in a beauty pageant, but then there was also a secondary thing to where someone was in jeopardy or maybe there was a... a... Well, that was, a, yeah. I mean, the, the the world that you left them in often was just that, was just an arena to tell a smaller story. You know, that story was about a girl who was being sexually abused by a pageant director and and it was about that's what it was about and and um so you know you wanted to tell you didn't want to tell frivolous you wouldn't want to tell a frivolous story in a frivolous world mm-hmm. but if you set a really important sort of topical story about sexual abuse and you set that in the world of pageants in the south and the 60s or the 50s, then, you know, that's a pretty interesting marriage and something that you're not going to see anywhere else, you know, on, and, and it, it also gives you a place to, to, to let the air out, you know, you can, you can have fun and then you can, and then you can turn that moment into something really serious. And that's, that's great drama. And that's, um, that's what Quantum Leap did better than anybody. Did you ever feel like a sense of responsibility to always put like a moral lesson in every episode? Because there seemed yes. to, it always seemed to be about something, which a lot of yes. television isn't. Don drove us to do that. He, he, we wouldn't have done an episode that didn't have a meaning or didn't have a, a lesson or a moral or tell, you know, some sort of human story. It, it, we we just wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't have been interesting, you know. I mean, one of my very very favorite episodes ever was a sh- episode I I did called Future Boy, 
And to me, that was the perfect quantum leap because it was set in this fantastic world of live television in the 50s. You had this crazy character who was trying to now build a time machine. And then at the end, you know, that last scene in the movie, you realize this guy got his idea from Sam, but Sam got his idea from him. So it was like this entire circle of the series. I mean, I remember Don reading that script and saying to me, man, you just brought it all back around. And I said, I know, isn't it? It's fantastic. Cause I, and, but I wouldn't have been able to do that on, in any other place except in that setting, you know, with this crazy character. But at the end of the day, it was about a father and a daughter. It was about a parent and a child that had been broken and that were trying to heal each other. And, and so, you know, again, it was like, it was all the fun of the craziness of this man, but then it was really, it was a story that everybody can relate to. Everybody's got a mom and dad. Everybody's got a family. Everybody's got a broken relationship somewhere in that, in that mix. So yeah, it was, and, and like I said, mine more often than not were about family. My, you know, more than even the other guys, the other guys would tell I, I believe more, you know, mysteries and detective stories and stuff. Mine usually came down to to uh, the family. Future Boy, did you get that idea all at once or did the story develop in your head over time? That, yeah, that one came really fast and easy. And and once I, I had the leap in and I, you know, and I realized, you know, I, I, I sold them on a man that was building a time machine and, and then I think Don said, you know, Don, and I, and, and I think in my original story, the machine didn't work, you know, it had no chance of working. And Don said, you know what, we, it, you should make it so that it, it, for just a second, it looks like he might leap and like he's almost there. And that to me was the key to it. Cause then, you know, he revved this machine up and then Don, and then Sam and, and Al are standing there and this thing starts to, to sputter and, spark the way you, you're familiar seeing it and then it stops and it breaks down and you realize wow this guy was like close this guy might have gotten there you know and uh and so that was sort of and a lot of that stuff was for you guys a lot of that stuff was for the people who paid attention and the people who loved the show and and knew the connection between episodes and you know so you had a lot of balls in the air doing that show that was a great moment because that's the moment you knew he wasn't crazy, that if he just had a little bit more time, he might have made that's it right. Work. That's right. Like everybody thought he was crazy and they wanted to commit him and, and stuff, but, and, and that, you know, but no, he, he was actually onto something. And, and that's why I loved it. And I also love that episode because I, my best friend growing up as a kid is a, a man named Dave Chase. We're still best friends. And at the end I used his name and, and I said, this letter from little David Chase from, uh, and so I didn't <laughs> tell Dave and, Dave, Dave got a big kick out of that. That's awesome. So, that was fun, yeah. I noticed in at least uh, three of the episodes you wrote that uh, Sam was on television while he was leaping in, either in a soap opera, pro wrestling, or on Future Boy. Yeah, uh, even in um, even in Killing Time. Oh uh, yeah, he was, he was on. He was the wanted on the the TV screen. So uh, yeah, I, it just it was a great you know it was a great device to kind of sell period, you know, mm-hmm. or to let people, to, you know, because you could use commercials, you could use period sort of a style, the way things looked at a different period. So TV works really great in my mind to sell that, to instantly visually sell that whatever period you were in. And uh, so it was a device that I went back to a lot, but I, uh, 
Yeah, that was another favorite of mine, the um, the episode with uh, the soap opera episode with Pua Taylor Vince and um, Moments to Live. Yeah, I, I, I had fun writing that episode, too, because it was crazy. You know, I mean, here you have a, a woman who kidnapped a soap opera star to impregnate her, but then you think her husband is there to kill him, but he's actually in on it. You know, the husband's <laughs> actually going along with it because he's nuts, you know, and uh, and Sam's like, oh my God, I'm I'm trapped with uh, some psychos here. But but that whole, the fun of that soap opera world and then juxtaposed with this couple that just want to have a child. They just want to have a family. And again, it's goes back to family for me because family is everything with me. Was that episode Moments to Live when the woman thought that he was a doctor and couldn't separate the actor from the character? Was that at all yeah, like a commentary yeah, on what yeah, was she, happening she, in real life? Exactly, people? exactly. And I cast this actor, Pruitt Taylor Vince, who he's done a ton of movies since. Mm-hmm. But when I cast him, Pruitt has a, he's a real interesting actor, but Pruitt has a affliction. I don't know what they call the the situation, but his, his eyeballs move back and forth very fast. He can't stop them. So he, he doesn't drive. And, and if you talk to him, his, his eyeballs are like moving constantly, like vibrating. And I just thought that's the craziest and most interesting thing I've ever seen. So, and he was a really good actor. He's a great actor. So that was really fun working with him and, and putting them in it. And I, again, I like Southern Gothic sort of rural craziness you know and that's where i come from and um the south i I think i use the south a lot in my stories is it fun to put little things in the episodes like naming her norma bates yeah yeah that's that's stuff that keeps us interested you know like how are we gonna how are we gonna slip in fun these little fun moments you know sometimes they're just for us sometimes they're you know, their names of friends, their names of family. That's the that's one of the privileges of creating the world is sometimes you can populate it with with people from your life, and uh, that's that's sort of the fun of that. We talked earlier about, uh, of course, you being in a wheelchair for a while, and when the uh, mother falls asleep in the wheelchair and is spinning, I laughed out loud at that part of the episode. Was right. that was that something that came from real life, or you just thought that would be funny? Oh yeah, no, that was a guy. When I was in rehab, there was a guy who used to drink, and he used to drink like his aftershave, <laughs> and, he, and he would just sit in this chair, this electric chair, and spin around, and, and nobody would bother him, because he would just, he'd pass out, <laughs> and, and, I was, and so I just, I just used that. I used everything. I mean, you know, that, that episode uh, about the legless Vietnam that... Nowhere to run. Nowhere to run, who I named after my father-in-law, who just recently passed away, Ron Miller. And uh, that episode had a lot of stuff that was from my life and from my time in the hospital. And there's a scene in the pool where he's talking about trying to sabotage his relationship with his fiance because he doesn't want to have her have to live this life of a burden with him. And, And I live that and I've watched young men do that to their girlfriends in rehab because they didn't want to have to, they didn't want their girlfriends to stay with them because they didn't want to, saddle them with that life and so all that stuff I saw and lived all that stuff so it's you only write what you know I mean you can only make up so much until and when it feels false you know you have to really write the truth of your own life and um, so that's that's what I did that's that's why I think people liked my writing and that's why I think I became a pretty decent writer is because I had lived such a so quickly such an intense life you know I mean when you go away at 15 and 
you live with a bunch of legless Vietnam vets and you see a lot of things and experience and hear and a lot of things that you wouldn't normally experience. So I, I came at writing with a full, a full bag, you know, I had a bag full of stuff to tell and uh, I found it pretty easy to do. In the fan community, Quantum Leap fans, Leapers, right? there's always, and even when you read descriptions for episodes on different things like Netflix or something, there's always right. a confusion whether um, Sam Beckett's body leaped or just his soul, and if it's just an aura around a body. And uh, Nowhere to Run is one of the episodes always cited as the example of uh, Sam walking without legs, right. being able to walk. Things like that. Was there a rule book like he can do this, he can't do that, or were you making it up as you went in accordance to you each know, story? The, yeah, the, there was a rule book. It was a rule book that lived only in Don's head. And when you would write scripts, because we were constantly wondering about that stuff ourselves, so we would write moments. And if he believed it, or if he if it passed muster in, with him, then it worked. If it didn't, you'd go back and figure it out in a way that it would make him happy. So in a lot of ways, that rule book only lived within him. But I think you're right. I think that in, in some ways, it was, it was almost like his soul got ahead of his body. And maybe, that bo- maybe his body was chasing him around, too. And, and, uh, but yeah, it was, it was always a little complicated, especially in, in scenes like that, you know, where, mm-hmm. where and, and sometimes you would, I think we would push the envelope a little bit. And um, a lot of times, I'll be honest with you, you guys knew and thought more about it than we ever did. Mm-hmm. You know, because I remember being at that Quantum Leap convention and they had a trivia contest and Paul Brown and I were sitting over on the side and we didn't know a lot of the answers, you know, to these trivia questions. And, and I would look at him and go, man, we got to look into this because we don't know enough about our own show. These people know more about this than we do. But um, but that's the fun of it, you know, people, and a lot of times it's interpretation, so let people have fun with it and think what they want. As long as it's entertaining, it worked for us. And uh, 25 years later, we spend three hours or more on each episode discussing it in detail, so who would have thought that was Yeah, happen, right? well, hey, but look, at that's, isn't that what they talk about, like the Beatles? Mm-hmm. The, you know, when, you, when you, you can dissect the Beatles music and find all this really cool sort of, innuendo in it and then you go ask the Beatles and they go no we were just writing a funny story <laughs> there you know so that's the beauty to me of creation is that it means different things to different people and if it's done well it'll mean something special and something different to every person that watches it you know a different interpretation I mean did you see like did you see the new uh, film uh, Birdman no not yet yeah well you, when you go see that tell me what the ending of that movie means okay you know I mean and and I've talked to three or four friends of mine who saw it and we all had a different version of what that meant mm. of the ending of that movie and then I read where the filmmaker said I wanted everybody who watched the movie to have a different idea or their own idea of what happened at the end of this movie so sometimes that's the idea. Sometimes the idea is is that there is no one idea. There is no one perfect uh, way to interpret it. It's like what it means to you, and, and and I think that's what art is. You know exactly. That's what art is. Yeah. At the end of the day, have you ever had somebody uh, come up to you and talk about something you have written and gotten so much out of it, and then thinking to yourself, "I had no idea when I wrote that 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 could have meant that." Yeah, a lot of times. You know, I mean, I would get letters from women, mostly women who had watched episodes that had 
help them empower them in some way or, you know, to leave their husbands or to stand up to abusive relationships. And, and, and you were like, wow, that, that was like deeper than I even ever intended it to be. You know, that, that I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad that, that it struck somebody in a way like that, but yeah, it's always, it's always a surprise that, Hey, look, I'm surprised that you guys are even talking about this still. <laughs> so, um, it makes me happy and it humbles humbles me and and to think that that we did something that was kind of cool and it was special it it really was and it still lives Mm -hmm. so uh so yeah i appreciate you guys even being interested thank you uh thank you yeah if you want to hey i I was telling you i I had some art Mm -hmm. um you should go check out if anybody on facebook can go check it out it's called uh the site's called electrified mojo and you can see all my paintings on there and uh i'm really proud of them they're 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 whimsical they're but they're they get they're they're pretty cool. I think you guys will like them. Yeah, I'll put a link up on our website and let people know about it. Cool, cool. Okay, uh, let's go uh, Southern Comforts. Oh yeah, well that was the one that was the one I was telling you about that that, that I would get letters about people like you know there's been a women that had been in abusive relationships and had stood up and at the end of that one you know the woman stands up and and fights back and so that that's another one where you know it started out as one concepty thing and then it became a much more powerful story than even I anticipated and that was you know I used to tell writers that you want you know in the beginning of creating a story it's work it you know but there's a moment when you click into a story when it starts to work when it, it doesn't become work anymore and you really just become a transcriber of what it needs to be and and it really the story begins to tell itself to you instead of you having to make it up. And so that when I came up with that sort of abusive angle on that, then that story really clicked for me. And, and that's when everybody got interested in let's do this. It'll have a meaning, you know, heart of a champion. Uh, to me, that's a special one because I'm involved in pro wrestling myself. Oh, really? And, um, you got a lot of the stuff right for back then. I mean, before movies like The Wrestler and stuff that really said what the business was like. Yeah. Well, I grew up. I grew up watching wrestling, and the kick for me is I got to hire Terry Funk. Yeah, that was awesome to come in and be. And Terry Funk is one of the great, not only the great wrestlers of my youth. I grew up watching wrestling, Gordon Soley and South Florida wrestling, and and Terry Funk and his brother were world champions out of Texas. And so I, I got connected with Terry and then Terry came in and Terry turned out to be like one of the nicest, sweetest, down to earth, quiet, humble guys you'd ever want to meet. And then you turn the camera on and he'd be a, a maniac. You know, I mean, that scene where he bent the locker over his head, he improvised that. Well, nobody asked him to do that. <laughs> he just grabbed that door, ripped it off and bent it over his head and we were like going, oh my God, if anybody, if you stop rolling the camera on this, you know, we're going to fire somebody here today because that, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was fun. And my friend Joe directed that and, and I got to hire, actually, I think I, I put Ron Howard's dad in that episode. Wow. Yeah. His dad plays the doctor. Okay. In that episode. Yes. Rant, oh, now I recognize him. Yes. Rant Howard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm also a fan, you know, I mean, I grew up, I'm a movie and TV fan, so it, it it was always a joy for me to hire people that I knew I knew who they were or I knew I knew their connection to the business and so uh you know it was it was a joy to put put rants in that episode. 
I was at a local wrestling event and a guy actually had a heart attack and died in the ring. So that really? does happen. Yeah. Very scary. Oh, I'm sure it does. And I'm sure those guys had no medical coverage. Oh, I'm nothing. Sure they didn't, they didn't take care of themselves. And Terry used to tell me stories, you know, about, you know, broken legs, mm-hmm. and bones and, you know, injuries that they'd, they'd wrestle through. And yeah, so it was just a, it was just a way, again, it starts with a great leap in, you know, Sam's leaping in, he's in a ring and he's being thrown across a ring. Oh, the, the fun part of that too, was the day we filmed Sam getting pile driven. And, you know, we were going to debate whether we were going to do a stunt double mm-hmm. or not. And Terry assured Scott that he would, he would not hurt him that he could pile drive him and make it look good, but it wouldn't hurt. And Scott let him do it. And they did it over and over again. And they had the best time. They had so much fun. In high definition, you can definitely tell it's Scott. And I was amazed because those are some moves that they were doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, but we had Terry Funk, man. We had the, the world champion there. And he was going to, and he took complete care. And, you know, I said, all you got to do, you just have to do the ring thing for me where you bounce off the ropes and then you stop real quick. And make that face. I go, I go, you just got to promise me you'll do that. And, uh, yeah, I was there all day when we were shooting that wrestling stuff. And uh, we had this great sound stage. And my friend Joe Napolitano directed that and, and just shot it, just shot a beautiful sequence of the wrestling. It's entertainment. But at the time, a lot of people didn't know as much as like they do today about it. Right. Uh, is that why there was the story part where if it was a championship match, it was a competition, not entertainment, maybe? Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I didn't really write it for people who knew that much about wrestling. You know, I sort of wrote it for the Quantum Leap fan that may not know that much about wrestling. But it was also a, a more innocent time of wrestling, you know? Like the 50s and the, the 60s. You know, now it's big show. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's big characters. And, and, you know, it's almost like oh, it's so over the top now. But back then, it was like, you know, the Russians, they were the bad guys mm-hmm. and, or, or, you know, and, and that was, the, it was good versus evil. And that, that was really what we were shooting for. And the, and the idea that these Russian, supposedly these Russian bad guys were just actually American guys that were just pretending to be Russians. Uh, we still have those today. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure everything's, everything's not what it appears to be. And that's, you know, and that sort of that was sort of the through line of, of everything we did on Quantum Leap was nothing is what it appears to be. In Killing Time, it's one of the few episodes that we see the future. Uh, did you in, were you entirely responsible for the future world, or was that like yeah, a collaboration? Wow. Yeah, I was, and that was a real risk. That was like coming out of the box a little bit from what we normally did, and th- again, I think we were at a point where we wanted to start pushing the envelope a little bit. So creating that futuristic world was both a challenge and it I'm sure it in hindsight it probably looks a little cheesy now but uh, but we had fun doing it and I remember when Al went to and there was the strip the stripper thing mm-hmm. we shot that on a sound stage Michael Watkins was our DP Michael is now executive producer of the blacklist and um, we shot that he did it handheld we had this real stripper come in and she stripped and I I've, I've never before or since that day saw Dean Stockwell come out of his trailer between shots <laughs> I I turned around and Dean Stockwell is standing right next to me smoking a cigar watching this shot be done and it was the funniest thing I ever saw I said oh hello 
I said, what are you doing out here? And he's like, what do you think? And, and so we shot, we, he shot that entire stripper thing handheld on the stage with her. It was amazing to watch, it was, to watch him work. And it was cool. It was cool kind of giving Al something interesting to do, you know? It was always a challenge to, to get something for Dean. It wasn't just him being like a parrot, you know, mm-hmm. like, or, or just a signpost. You know, here, Al, here, Sam, I, I, I can tell you this and tell you that, and then he's gone. Uh, I think Dean was looking for a little bit more to do, and, um, and I think that's where we came up with that episode. It's a really good one. Uh, was there ever a debate of whether or not to include the date of 1999? Yeah, I, I don't remember. I don't remember any date. I, I think I, I think we did it. Gosh, I think we did it because we didn't want we didn't want to cross the threshold of of a new millennium, mm-hmm. and it was like far enough out where it was. Well, you know, we can we can sell that it's going to be futuristic, but we don't have to go too far out. Plus, we had to keep it within the lifetime, you know. Was there any unwritten law of how long his lifetime was? Because a lot of times he went to the past, but didn't go to the future in the five seasons. Yeah. Um, no, we didn't talk much about the future as far as their lifespan, but we did, We did. you know, we did have a cutoff as far as how far we went back in the past. Mm-hmm. And we, I don't think we ventured much past the late 50s ever. But, um, you know, that was always the last thing we thought about when we were working up these stories. That was like, you know, you'd work up a great story and then somebody go, yeah, but, you know, we can't go there because of this and that. And it was like, oh, gosh, you know, <laughs> let's change the rules, you know, but Don would never let you change the rules. Mm. But I think, you know, I think it got weird later when we did like a Civil War story. Yeah. And and that's when I was sort of like, you know what, I don't think I want to be around here anymore. This is, <laughs> this is getting too weird even for me. And, and that I was ready to move on by then. Two of the episodes you uh, did, Future Boy and uh, Deliver Us From Evil, are probably uh, fan favorites from uh, amongst a lot of fans. Uh, what can you tell me about Deliver Us From Evil, and where did you get that idea? You know, I think it, I think it was, well, John's my friend. John's the guy that I drove to California with the first time I came out here with, and we're still really good buddies. But um, that was just, that came again, wanting to push the envelope and do something really darker and twisted and... Again, I felt like that one for me went we went a little too far with that one. I mean, we might have broke our own rules with that one in a way and it was okay. It was just it was just it got a little bit of soap opery for me uh, at that point and I think I think my better days as an episode creator were behind me then. I think that one and probably Blood Moon are probably my two least favorite. Uh Blood Moon is pretty infamous. Is it? Uh, a lot of people mention it uh, when they're trying In a to... a good way or a bad way? Uh, not so good. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't imagine they did. It was not one of my favorites. Uh, I, I don't remember what was going on in my life at that time, but I think I might have been having some issues in my personal life that that I just, I was distracted and, and I, you know, it was, again, it was that thing of, okay, it'll be fun. We'll leap him in. He'll think he's a vampire. That's fun. But then he can't really be a vampire because there's not really a vampire. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have to be involved with some sort of weird cult. And and we're going to have to make them realistic enough to be 
scary, but and it, it just had so many problems when you started to break it down. And, and the, uh, I, to be honest, the writing is just not really great in that episode. And so that, again, you, I started to see, no pun intended, the right the handwriting on the wall for me was like maybe I had maybe I had I had emptied my bag and and I needed to go do something else at that point. So uh, yeah, it happens. I, I still think it's a good episode. It's okay. I always get a laugh at the the dialogue in that when the girl says that, that they found her in a boot box. <laughs> and Don thought that was the funniest line he'd ever heard. He was like, in a boot box? I go, well, he goes, what's a boot box? I go, what's a box boots come in? They, somebody put her in a boot box. And he was like, okay. He just, he just shook his head. And I was like, I knew I was in trouble when that was what he was picking on. Mm-hmm. Promised Land? Yeah, I like that episode. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I mean, again, rural, you know, that sort of... Uh, all-American crime story, but it's about a family and, you know, it's about what's happening to these people and, and how they get pushed to the limit and sort of spoke to a time in this country when, you know, a lot of farms were going under and, and people were having to do things that they didn't want to do and getting their backs up against the wall. And I, I liked that story. I liked telling that story. Was it your idea to have uh, Sam's dad in there? Yeah, it was, and and um, and that was anytime we could do that kind of stuff. Scott played the heck out of that, and you know, I I think we may have made a mistake using Scott as the father and putting him in the makeup and stuff because I I know we went around and around about that, and and it's maybe I think Scott really pushed he wanted to do it as, as an acting thing, and. Um, and at that point, he'd earned the right to do whatever he wanted to do. But I think if I had more strength of character in myself, I would have pushed more to put another actor in the role. But it, as it worked out, and, and the way it got shot and revealed was, it was just nice. You know, it was, mm-hmm. again, I think, you know, every once in a while, we did those episodes for you guys because it was important that we not forget that this guy, Sam Beckett, also had a life at one time, you know, and that he'd left that life behind and that, wow, here he was actually jumping back into that life for a moment. Um, It was like, you know, it was like, I'm sure one of the favorite moments for the fans is Imagine, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when they sang, when, when he sang Imagine to his sister. Yeah, I cry every time. I think it was his little sister, wasn't it? Yes, I cry every time I, I see that scene. Of course, we did too when we saw it. And if, and again, Joe Napolitano shot that episode. Um, and um, but that was Don. Don Don usually saved those episodes for himself, and he usually wrote those episodes at the end of every year, and um, and they always turned out really special. But I guess I I stole one from him. <laughs> I stole the father. But uh, yeah, it was fun. It was nice, and it was again, it was um, it was a little bit low concept for our show. You know, mm-hmm. every once in a while we do a little bit of low concept, high concept, which was, you know, sort of my strength was like simple stories, simple characters. And, you know, and then of course I did blood moon. <laughs> uh, when we had John D'Aquino on the show, he talked very highly of you and uh, he mentioned about yeah, the I ro- gave him a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he mentioned uh, the beast within and how uh, you uh, and him kind of worked that out together. Yeah, we did. I, you know, he, he had shown, 
interested in writing and he wanted to maybe try to, you know, acting's a hard thing and, and he knew I, writing's more lucrative in a lot of ways. And, and so I wanted to help him and, and I was, I had the, I had the muscle at the time of the show to get him a script assignment. And, uh, as long as I took responsibility for it at the end of the day and, and so we sort of we sort of created that idea together, and then he wrote it, and I probably did a polish on the script. And um, I don't ever think he wrote anything else that I know of. But it was fun, you know. Sometimes you got to have fun in in the job, especially if you're in charge and you find yourself with a little bit of of uh, power, and you can do some things you want to do. So that was something I wanted to do. I wanted to I wanted to let my friend have the fun of writing an episode and, and, and so we did that together it was fun what do you think of what ended up being the series finale of the show i think that my feeling was that that you were in a no-win situation there it's like any great epic series it's never going to end the way everybody wants it to end and it's never going to be all things to all people i mean i was a huge sopranos fan i happen to be one of the people who sort of dug the ending of sopranos but there's a lot of people who love that show who were just so turned off by the way that show ended. Well, you have to end it somehow. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Don ended it the way he wanted to. But all those characters in that final episode meant something to Don. You know, they were creations of Don's and, and things that were important to him in the life of the series. So that's how Don wanted to, to end it. And that, and he he was the man who created it, so he had the right to do it how he wanted to do it. I thought it worked as well as anything else could have worked. I mean, there's a lot of people who would have wanted uh, to be more final, you know, like like more definite. But I don't know. What was your feeling about it? Oh, I liked it. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, some people don't. I don't. I don't get it. Yeah. But everybody sees art differently, you know. Yeah, exactly. And everybody has different expectations about something before it comes you know i'm one of those people i love movies i go see everything i mean my wife laughs because you'll go see bad movies i go i just love movies because i know first of all i love sitting in a the theater and the lights going down and like okay here comes something that i don't know and i like that experience but i am one of those people i tend to expect a lot and i'm always disappointed so, you know, and it, you know, even movies that are supposed to be great, I go see them now. If you tell me they're going to be really great, I go see them and they're not really, really great. I'm disappointed. So people that put their time and effort in, into watching that series, they may have these greater expectations than, than what's realistic. And But like you said, you liked it. I'm sure there's a lot of people who really liked it. So... Uh, I noticed some things in your episodes that might have uh, been like a repeating motif that two things I noticed was people jumping out of windows and Sputnik being in more than one episode. Uh, do, do you have things that are like you always try to sneak into it as like a signature, a hidden signature in your writing, maybe? Uh, for me personally, no. I mean, if anything, I always liked to use music in my stories. And that was one of the, you know, the great things about like at that time we had a pretty good music budget on quantum and we could get away with things like, you know, like I, I got to use a lot of Dylan music and, you know, that stuff cost money. And, you know, later on when I did shows like the dead zone and stuff, they couldn't afford to use real source music like that. So, I mean, I, I have a funny story real quick about, I was doing the pretender and I'd written this really poignant episode and I cut it in the editing room to 
the Sarah McLaughlin song, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was like every time somebody would see the cut, they would cry, and it was just fantastic. So we got to where we were going to lock the picture, and my producer called me and said, you know, we can't afford that song. And I said, what do you mean? They go, well, we don't have it in the budget for that song. You're going to have to find a different song. So I went back, and they gave me these temporary music cues to put in it, and nothing worked. Nothing worked like that song. So I said, well, all right, I'll get in touch with Sarah McLaughlin. So I found out her address, and I wrote her a letter, and I put a cut of the show in, and I put that scene in, and I said, I go, you don't you don't have any reason to give me this song for free, but if you think it works in this episode, I wrote it listening to your music, and I cut it to your music, and she wrote me back, and she gave me the song for free. Wow. So, yeah, so that was cool, but when we did Quantum, we still were able to afford really good music, so I liked using music in my, my episodes a lot, if I could, and I liked humor, but I also liked to find it moment where it was just where I could just tear your heart out you know so that was always important to me Don when I first came on the show Don said the three H's which were heart humor and history I had it up on the wall in my office and that's what I strove to get into every episode heart humor and some history so that was my mantra as I wrote this show well job well done with that because my heart was torn out multiple times watching this series thanks man I appreciate it you mentioned uh, stories towards the end of the series having to pull out of the bottom of the drawer, but was there ever anything that you wanted to do but couldn't do or maybe have thought of since that you wish you would have done on Quantum Leap? Well, there was a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, we we would have liked to have taken him back to the Old West, you know. We would have liked to have taken him back to, you know, I would have liked to have left him into a caveman scenario. I mean, you know, there was all kinds of stuff that you just you just couldn't go back far enough you know the only way we did the civil war thing was we connected through some sort of bloodline genetic thing that was just a cheat at the end of the day but but we always wanted to go back further you know into the revolution and into you know the prohibition and and i would have really had a great time writing you know stuff from earlier decades but we you know we 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 sort of had, we had a big window. We had a 30 or 40 year window that we, we operated in and, and that was pretty cool. And, and then along the ways, you know, we found various tricks to get our future out there in ways. So we, we sort of were constantly maneuvering around our own, our own rules, but we, you know, we kept in mind always that there was an audience that had expectations and they didn't, you know, it was sort of like, you know, you made the rules, you got to live by them. And um, so we, we, we sort of sucked it up and we, we were okay. We did what we had to do. If you ever had the chance to write for a new incarnation of Quantum Leap, would you do it? Oh, yeah, I would. But, I, you know, I think that time has passed. And, you know, I used to say, it's funny. I remember one day Chris Rupethal wrote an episode about a mummy, Hotep. And I remember we were, he and I and Paul Brown were standing on the soundstage and it was huge. They built this giant pyramid and interior and it was it was beautiful and i i looked at those guys and i said man i go this these are the good old days boys i go it's never going to be like this again and even then i knew that and um so i look back on those times very fondly from a production standpoint 
you know, we had some really amazing artists working on that show behind the scenes, uh, directors of photography and, and art designers, costume people. I mean, more than even most series, we had, we had a lot of veteran Hollywood people working on that series. So I was really honored to, uh, to be a tiny part of that, that whole process. And, um, and it was our time, but I think if they did it now, they would. They should probably do it with a whole new uh, group of young writers and a group of uh, of younger actors and get a new energy in it and tell it from a whole new perspective. I think it deserves uh, a fresh look. Me too. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it. And I, I really appreciate the fans that are still watching and that you guys have invested, you know, your emotions in the in the show. It's it's a big payoff, even this many years later for for a guy like me. And and I, I love you guys all for doing that. Do you like movies, television about comic books, and comic books themselves? Then you definitely need to listen to Thinking Outside the Long Box with Juan, John, and Gabe. Available now on iTunes, Stitcher, and your local computer monitor. Hi, Scott. Hi, Don. My name is Josh. I'm from Florida. I want to let you both know that I've been a fan of the show since I was 12. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool to come on out here. And uh, well, the question that I had is one thing that was so cool about the show is every week it was different. And you did different things. One week it, you'd be singing or you'd be fighting or dancing or all this different stuff. And it really exercised acting abilities. Was there any particular episode or, or character you found harder to do than others be, You know, because it required you to... I mean, be different people every week. Uh, well, there were there were a lot. I mean, you know, the, the challenges were different. Sometimes they were physical, just purely physical. And you know, the one I always talk about is is the trapeze show, <laughs> and people know that. But you know, and Diamond's like, "Woohoo, Bubba, we're gonna go flying!" You know, and and I got Bob. Wasn't it Bob? Yep, out in the valley, who had a trapeze in his backyard. Because who doesn't in the valley? <laughs> and I don't know if we even knew that. It was like you know, Saturday afternoon, I'm. Flying with some guy who taught Burt Lancaster how to fly, or flew with him in that in trapeze, right? Yeah. So, you know, there were those kinds of shows that were problematic, just the physical nature of it, uh, and that's just because. Look, I have a problem spinning. It's just I have an equilibrium thing in my head, and so when when I had to get in that, any time a freaking turntable showed up, and I had to spin around with an ass on the other side of it, or a mule, or whatever the heck that thing was, and what was it? A goat. Yeah, I was the ass. Uh, when I had to get on that thing, I just dreaded it because I would be sick for the rest of the day. And that just, and I had acupuncture needles in my ear and I had this and that. Anyway, and I couldn't take anything because you can't, you can't work and take anything. When I had to go around spinning the chimp thing and it was like, here it comes again. <laughs> oh yeah. And now I have to get to hang upside down and do the trapeze thing. The only, the only great payoff for that was that the real guy, 
Bob when he did all the stunts, the real stunts, because I don't really like to catch uh, the, the triple anymore. <laughs> uh, um, he threw up. <laughs> because they, they don't, the, the catchers, they just go over once. They sit, they sit, they're ready, everybody ready, they roll over, they catch a guy, they throw him back, and they pop up and they sit. But when you're doing it with a camera in the air, and you go, keep going, just hang on, we're gonna get it, uh, let's get the focus, we're almost rolling, you know, and then, and, and, you know, so, poor guy. <laughs> kind of felt good about it, but, kind of. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Sherry Headley, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I really enjoyed that interview with Tommy Thompson. I could honestly talk to him for probably two more hours. His life is so interesting, and his whole journey and how he got to Hollywood and be a big-time writer and a co-executive producer and executive producer of The Dead Zone. Imagine that. I love that series. So last week, I celebrated my 26th birthday, and I just wanted to thank everybody that Wish me a happy birthday on Facebook and thank you to Hayden who actually got me a Quantum Leap book for my birthday to read. He says you'll like it. Yeah, I think it's the follow-up to the story of little Teresa from Another Mother. So that's that's really cool. I actually didn't even, I think he had mentioned that there was a sequel, but I know we had talked about Al never going back. So that's really cool that there's a continuation. So hopefully now that I actually have some downtime, I can read it. Now, it is my absolute pleasure and honor to introduce this next segment. For the past few months, we have been putting together an audio drama set in the Quantum Leap universe. This was a project that took our whole crew, plus some new members of the crew. It's created by Jill Airway, who has a lot of experience doing audio dramas. It's called Quantum Leap, The Impossible Dream. This is the first installment of it. Enjoy. What if you could leap into the past, still facing mirror images that were not your own, still driven by an unknown force to change history for the better, and still guided by a hologram that only you could see and hear? But now you are also able to leap home. We've solved the problem. We live the impossible dream. Mr. Taylor, good to meet you at last. Call me Peter. Then you must call me Ryan. So this is it. Project Quantum Leap. This is it. You know, I read all the documents from the original Project Quantum Leap. I would expect nothing less. Quantum Leap was originally top secret, but that was 25 years ago. Now it's declassified and the government are no longer interested. That's why we need private funding. Come on, let me show you around. Meet the gang. I'd be honored. But before all that, I do have a couple of questions. Fire away. This is a time machine, right? I can understand why the government would want that kept secret. What I don't understand is why they would stop keeping it a secret. Are they not concerned that it might fall into the wrong hands? It's because God can't be controlled by the government or anybody else, the wrong hands included. The government wanted to affect major events in history, Quantum Leap can't do that. We can't control the leaps. No one can. No one on Earth, anyway. Every jump through time, or leap, is controlled by an unknown force for good. The previous Quantum Leap project suggested it could be God and that possibility is still not ruled out. God, or time, or fate, or whatever, is in complete control of the Quantum Leap process. We just get to tap the buttons. That's what I read. 
And that problem hasn't been solved? We don't see it as a problem. If anything, it's a good thing. It protects history from disastrous changes. Ah, here we are. Peter, I'd like to introduce you to my wife. This is Amber Lee. She's a leaper. Pleased to meet you. You're a time traveler? I am. How does it feel to step into Sam Beckett's shoes? Exhilarating. Come on, there's more to see. This is the waiting suite, and allow me to introduce you to our resident psychologist, psychiatrist, and counselor, Dr. Lawrence McKenzie. Pleased to meet you. And you. Lawrence here looks after our guests from the past while they spend time here. This suite is directly below the main Project Quantum Leap floor. As you can see, this is a fully equipped facility. From our guests' point of view, this is like the best hotel suite they've ever stayed in, with an in-suite medical care, which they will need because they arrive here disoriented. So let me make sure I understand this correctly. Amber travels back into the past and replaces an individual from that time. The person who gets replaced ends up here? Right. That must be confusing for them. Right. And not just because of the time travel. There are always memory problems associated with leaping. Nothing serious, just something we need to be aware of. If there were an actual leapy here, you would need to wear special glasses. Why? The leaping process causes our guests to be surrounded by an aura, which make them look like Amber. We've developed special glasses which enable us to see the actual person as they really are. And Amber looks like the person she's replacing. Exactly. Although not to me. That's because she and I have a neurological link so that my image can appear to her in the past. Guys, guys! The accelerator's resetting. We have a new mission. What's going on? We're being given a new mission. By who? Him. Oh. I'll get ready. The leap date is January 27th, 2010. That's a Wednesday. Location, I think somewhere in Missouri. Do we know anything about the objective? No, I think that's all we're getting. Ziggy? For now, that's all we know. We won't know any more until after the leap. Ziggy is a very special program. The original Ziggy was designed by Sam Beckett. Of course, the original Ziggy would fit on a phone these days. We've made some improvements since then. Actually, our Barbie made most of them. The new Ziggy requires today's computing power. Okay, I'm ready. Love the white turtleneck. And I love you too. Is the waiting suite ready? Dr. McKenzie is standing by. Neurological link is active. The imaging chamber is powered up. We are good to go. Well then, this is it. Let's change history. Three, two, When you leap, the game is always to figure out who you are, where you are, and why you're here. I looked around and I could see I was in the living room of a house. The TV was on, but I didn't recognize the program. I was alone in the room and there were no mirrors that I could see, but I was holding a phone in my hand, so I tapped on the camera app and flipped to the front-facing camera. Wow, I'm a teenage girl. And I have a text. Send the money by tomorrow, or your photos will be on the internet for all to see. Oh boy. Quantum Leap The Impossible Dream was created and written by Jill Arroway, starring Tawny Finneran as Amber Lee and Juan Morrow as Ryan Lee, with Hayden McQueenie as Peter Taylor, Suzanne Smiley as Barbie Sutton, Peter Vuenisak as Dr. Lawrence McKenzie, and Siri as Ziggy 2.0. 
Episode 1 was edited, cast, produced, and directed by Albert Mark Birch. Narration by Suzanne Smiley. Quantum Leap The Impossible Dream is produced in association with the Quantum Leap Podcast and is a Baron Space production. And that is just the beginning of a nice little story arc that we have going. I'd like to thank everybody that took part in that. And uh, I can't wait to hear the rest of it. It's going to be great. And we have some feedback. Feedback. These emails will be read by Juan. Was wondering why you can't buy Quantum Leap books on Kindle. Any thoughts? Ben. I know, right? That would be awesome if they did. Right now, they're just on paperback. I guess they have to be converted. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things to where I'm thinking from my talks with David Campetti about different licensings, they have to be approved and go through the whole process. And the people responsible for putting that stuff out just aren't there right now, is my best guess. I have seen some fan converted books out there, but nothing official. So for now, we got to pick up actual paper books. Which I own one now. That's pretty cool. Very cool. It's been a while since I read a paper book. It smelled good. It smelled, well, it doesn't smell new. It's not like new book smell, but it's it's never been read before, so. My Nook or your Kindle, they don't have a smell, really. No. Maybe we should get some artificial book smell, like that artificial pine. <laughs> I'm sure they have a candle that smells like that. This one's from Aaron Brotherhead Moss. Hey, Albie and Heather, and everyone else, just dropping you a quick hello. Just got done listening to the newest episode, another fantastic podcast for another fantastic episode. First of all, I agree that I think Heather is awesome. Also, without any spoiling, while probably not correct, Heather's theory is very good. It makes sense, and again, trying to avoid any spoilers could be a possibility, even if it's never said on the show. It is a nice fan wank. Hmm, bacon. Sorry, got sidetracked. Back to your podcast. Back to your wondering why Sam hasn't had a love interest in the episode where he leaps into a black person. I think, so far at least, that when they have Sam leaping into black people, they're more concerned with the issue of the episode and they don't want to detract from their social issues by including a romance subplot. Also, read interview with Shari Headley. Great interview. And I agree with Albie that she is a very attractive woman. And I'm glad that Albie finally watched Voyagers and enjoyed it. Keep up the great podcasting and hopefully Heather gets a few minutes to breathe in the near future. Until next time, Aaron, Brotherhead, Moss. Heather is awesome. (laughs) So I'm assuming by his comment, it means that somewhere in the series, it gets revealed that my theory is not correct. I don't remember it. So, but that, you know, I wasn't watching the series over and over again before we started this. I had seen them all, but not ridiculous amount of times like I am now. So I could have just forgotten that part. But nonetheless, he liked my theory. So that's cool. And bacon. Who doesn't like bacon? Because bacon. And this is from Matthew Vandiver. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Finish the Pool Hall Blues podcast. Some quick thoughts. Nothing really important. Excellent episode. Very, very nice. I have to admit that whenever I play pool, I imagine laser lines showing me the right angles. This, invariably, does not work out well for me. Heather made many excellent points on her speech about sexuality, so kudos to her for that. Unfortunately, I only love transsexual lizard women, So I'm kind of out of luck until we meet that type of alien being or genetic engineering for fun and profit becomes a big thing. 
It's coming. Seems like my recent comments on Goodnight, Dear Heart were a little late to the party. Ah, well, I'm happy to be on the same page as other people. Relating to that, thanks for saying people should check out my comments, Albie. I hope I continue to do good by the podcast. It's the first one I found for something I love that I've been able to find reasonably close to the beginning of its run. I had a weird crossover idea during this podcast, Quantum Leap and Ben 10, which features another awesome time-traveling scientist, Professor Paradox. Next time, it's Leaping Without a Net, featuring one of my favorite little person actors, Phil Fondacaro. I'll say something you're not likely to hear from anyone else. I love the movie Troll. 1986, which featured him, Matthew Vandiver. For a while, I myself was into transsexual lizard women, but you know, I go through different phases. Yeah, for a while, I think he wanted me to be green. Is it the? Uh, it's still. Yeah. It's very possible if you use food coloring and a sponge, and it won't wash out for days. Imagine Ren's reaction if I was green. <laughs> I know my reaction. <laughs> uh, we'll be in my bunk on Twitter. Tom Quinn said, R.E. Sam cheating at pool. Magic taught Al. Al coached Sam. So in a way, Sam won because of magic. That was pretty cool. See, when I thought you said that the first time, I was thinking like magic. Like, not the person magic, but like magic taught. I listened to our last show on Pool Hall Blues, and for some reason, every time anyone said magic, you or me, I thought magic, you know, like Ta-da! <laughs> Abracadabra, all peanut butter sandwiches. Right? And it's so weird. When you listen to it like that, we're really messed up in what we're saying. <laughs> and this one's from Father Beast. As Sam leaps in, he is subjected to the usual making fun of him because he doesn't know what's going on. The interesting thing is that it takes a couple of minutes to realize that it isn't him being made fun of, but the guy he's playing pool with. As the elderly Black Magic Walters, any quirks are attributed to his age and he is so respected that nobody questions him. Well, aside from people asking him if he's been eating onions. Hmm. Just thinking about it makes me want to go and fry some onions. Anyway, the drama is that Magic's granddaughter has borrowed money to fix up her pool hall into a classier nightclub. And she can't pay it back. So some guy is going to be owning her nightclub. The only way to fix things seems to be to play a game of pool with the guy who owns the marker, which is kind of odd, since without the pool game, the guy can just take over the club and nobody can stop him. If the bad guy wins, it's the same result as if he didn't play at all, as far as taking the club. It seems that the only advantage to risking losing the club is the chance to humiliate a pool great. I think I dislike him even more now. I'm a little disappointed that Sam didn't find some innovative way to get around the difficulty, but admittedly he did try. Ultimately, he has to play the game, and the bad guy actually is pretty good on the table. But Sam, with the help of a supercomputer from the future, is better. So the bad guy's plan to humiliate a pool legend whose eyes have gone bad is going awry. So this aspiring gangster has his guy break Magic's cue. There are some hiccups with the guidance system, and Sam ends up having to make the final shot by himself. How did he do that? We're all cheering so loud we don't care, but he wins the game. I really like the next scene, where the bad guy tries to further intimidate the granddaughter and Sam steps in and grabs the bad guy's cue. After wrestling the cue from him, Sam unscrews it and hands it back, which is a clear callback to the guy who broke Magic's cue and then joked that he should have unscrewed it first. So, I see that the moral of the story is, if you're going to foreclose on a marker and own a nightclub, don't risk it on the chance to humiliate a pool legend. It could backfire. Next time, swinging free. Father Beast. Thank you, Father Beast. Always great observations. I totally missed that whole callback with the pool stick. It makes sense now that you said it, but all the times I watched it, I just didn't see it. 
I think that makes Sam even cooler now. Thanks for the emails, everyone. Okay, so some of you might have seen that we sent out emails before this episode asking for feedback. Only to the people that have already sent us feedback because you guys are rock stars. But we were thinking about starting a newsletter because Facebook sometimes doesn't reach everybody and Twitter sometimes doesn't reach everybody. So we were thinking that a newsletter might keep you all informed a little bit more. It'll have new information, when an episode is released, what interviews we have coming up, stuff like that, all sorts of fun information. What we're going to do is we have at quantumleappodcast.com slash newsletter, or if you go to the quantumleappodcast.com site, there's a tab that says newsletter. So if you go there and you sign up for our newsletter, you will be entered into a new giveaway. We will be giving away a Quantum Leap laser disc with two episodes on it, What Price Gloria and Catch a Falling Star. Even though some of you don't probably have laser disc players like Albie, it's still pretty cool and they fit in record frames. You could frame it on the wall and it, they look really cool. We have a lot of laser discs hanging up and they look really nice in the frame. Still something pretty cool that you could have as a prize. So go on to quantumleappodcast.com slash newsletter or click on the newsletter tab on the top of the website and fill out the form. The only required spot is your email address. But if you want to fill in everything else, it'll make it easier for us to send you the prize and any other goodies throughout the year that we feel like sending you. Hopefully the newsletter thing is a hit. We're going to try it and hopefully you guys like it. So you can subscribe at any time. There will be a link on every email that we send you that you can unsubscribe. So if you don't like hearing from us, you can (laughs) click the button. But obviously, if you're listening to this, I think you kind of like us by now. Enter your information into the form and you'll get a newsletter out of it every now and then. And you can be entered to win a Laserdisc. People that are already subscribed to the newsletter can also enter the contest. Just send me an email and let me know you're already subscribed, but you would like to be in the contest. And one person at random will be chosen to get this laser disc. Yeah, the the quality is is you know fantastic. <laughs> I think that's. Uh, oh wait, no, the other thing. The other, the other thing. thing. Yeah. Well, but you know, it's fun to have. It's a piece of history. So if you you want just every piece of quantum leap memorabilia there is, and you don't have this one quite yet. Uh, we're giving it away. So good luck. Yes, good luck. There are many ways to leave feedback. You can go to quantumleappodcast.com. You can send us an email at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail by calling 707-847-6682. Or you can go on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We are on Twitter at QuantumLeapPod. You can also follow us on Instagram at QuantumLeapPodcast. And we are on Patreon. If you go to Patreon.com slash QuantumLeapPodcast, you can check out our page and see what we're doing there. And I'd like to take this time to thank Tom Quinn, Jason Ritter, and Donald Summerlin. You should thank these guys, too, because they're helping us cover the cost of production on the Quantum Leap Podcast and making sure a shiny new episode gets to you every time. So thanks, guys. Yes, thank you. Can you believe it's already 2015, Heather? I can't. Hayden, being an Aussie, lives in the future. So he he got to experience 2015 before anyone. I wonder what amazing stories he'll have from the future. I hope he comes back soon. I really miss...
Albie. You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Whoa, wait a minute. What are you doing, Hayden? I need fuel. Go ahead. Quick, get in the car. No, 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 no. I just got here. Heather just got here. We're recording the latest episode of the podcast. Well, bring her along. This concerns her too. Whoa, wait a minute, Hayden. What are you talking about? What happens to us in the future? What, do we become jerks or something? Uh, no, 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 Albie. Both you and Heather turn out fine. It's your kids, Albie. Something's gotta be done about your kids. Hey, Hayden, you better move across. We don't want a head-on collision getting up to 88. Head-on collision? Where we're going. We drive on the left. Sam Beckett can literally take on the persona of anybody at any point in time within his own lifetime. That means that there were, and still are, an infinite number of possible crossover opportunities. Don Belisario has stated that he wanted to have Sam leap into an episode of Magnum P.I. as Magnum, even having filmed the opening teaser for the episode. But unfortunately, that episode did not come to pass due to Quantum Leap's cancellation. When it was asked on the Facebook page what shows you would like to see crossed over with Quantum Leap, the response was astounding. Peter Voynasak said, Dallas, spoiler, but it's been 35 years. What if Sam leapt into Dallas in 1980 and changed the past and prevented JR from being killed and was only shot instead? But seeing as it was all a dream anyway, does that mean that everything Sam does is a dream too? Sarah Pitaway said, The Pretender, possible as it's an unusual show. Early Edition, another time-travelling show. Sliders. Excluding Star Trek as Captain Archer, Tech already time-travelled. I hated that they had to have that story arc. Felt they used Scott's Quantum Leap fame to run that story. Loved Archer, but had enough of it by Season 3. Jenna Ray Johnson said, Sam leaps into Chicago, the same Chicago that Gary Hobson from Early Edition is in. He saves Gary. You know, personally, I think that Sam's the one who writes the newspaper using information he gets from Alan Ziggy. Matthew Van Diver said everything. And surprisingly, it could happen. Victor Emoth said Star Trek. Now imagine the possibilities of Sam leapt into Spock. That would mean he could leap into aliens, or at least part aliens. I wonder what the limitations on Sam's interspecies leaping would be. Gareth J. Farmer said Doctor Who, just as the Doctor is regenerating. Oh, time travel in time travel. That's timeception right there. Steve DeFrancesco said the Dukes of Hazard as Daisy Duke. To which Jeff Stray replied, Sam wearing Daisy Dukes would be scary. Suzanne Smiley said the A-Team. Sam leaps into face. But I pity the fool who would leap him into anyone other than Mr. T. Roger Colton said, Don could have tied up a whole bunch of loose ends with a single show. 
And what a show that would be. Naomi Hodgkin said, True blood. Let's mix up vampires and time travelling. Yeah. See the Quantum Leap episode, Blood Moon. Cliff Sullivan said, It would have been great to see Sam leap into James Evans from Good Times and prevent Mr Evans from dying on the train while trying to get a better job. Maybe he could have gotten that job and moved the family out of the ghetto. And JJ could have become a successful painter and Michael would have gone to law school. Dem feels rippling in my soul, just like the effects of a single event. Tom Roykoff said, I always thought it would be cool if Sam met the Voyagers, another time travel series about a kid named Jeffrey Jones who teams up with time traveller pirate Phineas Bogg and help Jeffrey get back to his own time. Faye McSorley said, The Big Bang Theory. Now really, how cool would it be to have Sam leap into Penny and then have Sheldon make some snarky comment about her being stupid and Sam one-upping him on everything he says, finally earning Penny Sheldon's respect? Adrian Salerno said, Into Richard Tambling to make him a good player. Now, for those Americans out there, Richard Tambling was a Richmond football club uh, player. And, uh, yeah, I kind of agree with him. I'd love to see Richmond win the premiership in my lifetime. Jeff Stray said it would be cool if Sam leapt into sliders and ended up in a completely different universe. They could carry that idea for several episodes and make lives better in different time periods within that other universe with its own unique history before returning to his own. To which Adrian Salerno replied, Sam crossing over into sliders, then laughing at them saying, you guys were a poor man's quantum leap. Rich Ladwig said, how about Jag? Aaron Head Moss said, I agree with Doctor Who, Sliders and Voyagers. Mac Jackson said, Dead Zone, Doctor Who, Stargate SG-1, Duncan MacLeod, Indiana Jones, Sleepy Hollow. And Kerry Lutz summarised up all our sentiments perfectly with one sentence. I just wish the show was still on. Missed the show so much. Now maybe it's the fact that we have just clocked over into 2015 and I'm still getting used to putting on my self-lacing shoes so I can ride my hoverboard, trying to avoid being hit by the flying car that's delivering my dehydrated pizza, and finding any cash to pay him is near impossible as all my pockets are inside out. But the crossover suggestion that really stuck out to me was having Sam leap into Marty McFly from Back to the Future. Let's just think about that for a second. If Sam leapt into Marty McFly, then he would be friends with Doc Brown, the only person in universe of the crossover anyway, who has made time travel possible. Not only that, Doc has perfected it to the point where a time traveler can actually control the exact point in four dimensions, length, breadth, height, and time, where they would like to go. It's been shown that being trapped in time has taken its mental toll on Sam. He can't really grow close to anyone, because as soon as he completes his mission, he leaps somewhere else. And even though he's considered it in the past, like in Catch a Falling Star, he is so selfless he would never allow anything bad to happen to somebody else if he could prevent it. But with a time machine that he himself could control, who knows what he'd try to do. Sam is human, and he does have selfish tendencies. He might decide to try to change his own life or help out his friends and family. Or an even darker twist, he might decide to go to 1995, and tell the pre-leaping Sam not to do the experiment, thus preventing himself from ever leaping in the first place and undoing all the good he has done during his leaps. Of course, by doing that, he would never have leapt into Marty McFly and thus could never stop himself from leaping, so he does leap. Uh-oh, a time paradox. 
the result of which could cause a chain reaction that would unravel the very fabric of space-time continuum and destroy the entire universe. Granted, that's a worst-case scenario. The destruction might in fact be very localised, limited merely to our own galaxy. Or maybe the two Sams meeting would just cause them to both pass out from shock. I don't know. One thing is for sure, though. Sam would definitely be trying to learn everything he can about Doc Brown's theories so that he could get Al and the others at the project to try and utilise them. Maybe that's how they could get him home. Didn't you say there was a problem with my kids? Oh, yeah. Serenity works at Macca's. Macca's? Oh, right, American. Uh, McDonald's. That's her chosen career? No, not her chosen career. It's only part-time while she completes high school. That's a good thing. So what's the problem? She wouldn't give me a discount! Oh, heck no. Wait till I give her a piece of my mind. Macca's run! Okay, so another thing that's going on upcoming is the Podcast Awards, 10th Annual Podcast Awards, and the nominations start January 2015. And we qualify this year, so yay. Yay! So if you would be so kind and to nominate us, that would be awesome, because that's really exciting that we qualify. We would like to be nominated in the entertainment category and also the best produced category. So if you guys think we are worthy of being nominated for the 2015 Podcast Awards, please head over to podcastawards.com and nominate us and tell a friend. Yeah, spread the word. You think we'll get nominated? I hope so. I hope so, too. So also in the news, I guess this would be the news section of the podcast. Heather, do you have any news for us? Okay. Um, kind of. The People's Choice Awards was on, and Scott Bakula didn't win. But he was up against David Tennant. So that's kind of really hard to do. So a doctor versus uh, Sam Beckett. And I'm pretty sure he got voted to win because he was Doctor Who, not because of his new show, because his new show got canceled. So I still wanted to watch the new show, but I, I don't think it was about time travel. No, or Doctor Who. I was going to wait for uh, Netflix on that one. Whoops. <laughs> Heather, do you have any trivia for us? Did you know that there are only 10 episodes of Quantum Leap with the word leap in the title? That is very cool. What are they? So far, I think Leaping Without a Net is the first one we've encountered. So Leaping Without a Net, The Leap Home Part 1, The Leap Home Part 2, Leap of Faith. That's a Tommy Thompson one too. The Leap Back, A Leap for Lisa. It's a Wonderful Leap, Leaping of the Shrew, Return of the Evil Leaper, and Revenge of the Evil Leaper, and Leap Between the States. That's 11. I guess Leaper is different than Leap. Well, then that would take two away. Then it would be nine. It's your trivia. Hey. <laughs> so there may be 11. I'm not sure. If anybody else wants to recount, let us know. In the beginning, when Sam climbs down and falls off the net, he hits the dirt, which makes a sound kind of like he was hitting a board. So maybe it was like a board with sand over it. It was almost like the wrong sound effect put in there. Whoops. It should have been like a stick hitting a bag of sawdust or something, but it was more just like somebody hitting a piece of plywood. You're like a stick hitting a bag of sawdust. <laughs> in practice, when 
Eva was trying to do the triple and he misses her, the wide angle shot shows that she is already below Sam's arms when she reaches out. But when it cuts to a close shot, she is able to almost catch his arms. So I guess that's what happens with stuff like that, though. It's hard to calculate it perfectly. Yeah, they should have shaved off a couple frames, maybe. You should have shaved off a couple frames. <laughs> Throughout the show, the big top changes from one shot with many blue stripes on the ceiling to another shot with a couple of blue stripes and a dark center and back again. So there's some continuity in what the ceiling looks like. Is it a ceiling? The, the top? Top of the tent. Eh. One might be a set. One might be an actual circus tent. I'm not sure. You're an actual circus. <laughs> They're so perfect, though. They're funny. Are you excited for the next episode, Heather? Always. Next time, we talk about Season 2, Episode 20 of Quantum Leap, Maybe Baby. Sam leaps into a man named Buster while he's in the middle of a kidnapping. He and a stripper named Bunny O'Hare kidnap baby Christine to take her to safety in New Mexico. They make their way across Texas while the authorities are in pursuit. Can Sam trust Bunny? Oh, Buster, I love you so much for doing this. I could kiss you all over. <laughs> oh, we woke her. Oh, boy. No, I told you. It's a girl. Suddenly, this leap was beginning to feel like Bonnie and Clyde. And a baby. She sees you as you, Sam. Well, she can see you too, Adam. Of course. All babies and animals can see me. And blondes with very low IQs. Maybe I'm here to change a baby. I wish it was that simple. What do you mean? According to Ziggy, there's a 75.6% chance that you're here to return Christy to her father. Well, if they were never married and Rita's her father, Bunny's not Christy's mother. And that means that you two are kidnappers. Whoa. <laughs> the kid's not in a car seat. <laughs> uh, in the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, it is the car seat safety issue. So I hope you're all looking forward to that. Anyone forward facing their child right now that is under four or 40 pounds, you'll learn why not to do that next time. Yeah. Beware. I'm going to go on a car seat rant. I'm sure you've heard me about seatbelts. Just wait to hear what I have to say about car seats. <laughs> Uh, it's a great episode. Besides that, I think. I really enjoyed it. It's got Julie Brown in it, so I'm looking forward to uh, that episode. And, of course, there will be a lot devoted to uh, car seat safety. Yeah, and new laws about car seat safety just came out. So, Oh, great. So we'll, we'll be updated. You are so excited, aren't you? I, I actually am. It's important. I mean, internal decapitation is not fun. So uh, no. in the next episode, it will be entertaining and... Because most of our shows aren't. So this one, next one, it's going to be good. So if you or someone you know has a car seat aged child, which is up to what age, Heather? Uh, if you're talking booster seats up to 12. Up to 12 years old. Then you'll want to tune in next time to hear what we have to say. Until next time, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. Remember, if you're going to leave yourself a note taped to a window for your past self, use two pieces. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Go to quantumleappodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. 
Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash quantumleappodcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan. Researched by Juan. Contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap Podcast is Hayden McQueenie, and Juan is the line producer. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production. I don't think I could trust myself to hold on to a bar while I swang, swung, 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 swinged. <laughs> Lorenzo and I don't know the guy the character's names. Victor. Victor. Thank you. And Laszlo. Lorenzo. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a shitty thing to do. <laughs> Can I say that on the podcast? No, no, you can't. Okay. You might have to rephrase that. Oh, well. I didn't really think about that too much. I was like, maybe it's because she's Hungarian, but she obviously wasn't. <laughs> up. I don't know if that's, that's even I nice. I was just kidding. Okay, I was just kidding. For that little character of the boy next to Baltimore. Now, what's his name? Voldemort Laszlo. Laszlo. That's sitting next to Laszlo. Leap of Faith. Miss Deep th- Miss Deep <laughs> South. Shut up. Tom Quinn said on Twitter that magic I should read it, shouldn't I? Probably. Tom Quinn mentioned on Twitter, he says Tom Quinn on Twitter Tom Quinn on Twitter said R-E, which means what? Regarding? Regarding, yeah. Tom Quinn mentioned on Twitter. On Twitter, on Twitter, Tom Quinn mentioned, hmm, on Twitter, on Twitter, Tom Quinn said, Sam cheating at pool, R-E, Sam, said, Tom Quinn said, R-E cheating on pool. What the fuck is wrong with you? What? But for real? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> I wonder what amazing stories he'll have for uh, going back. I wonder what amazing stories he will have for uh, <laughs> Hey Hayden, you better move. Oh, making you laugh, sorry. Sorry. Hey, Hayden. Okay, do it again. I really loved what he said about Fruity Pebbles and wearing shorts in the summer. I don't know. I prefer Lucky Charms. And who would have thought there are that many uses for a cheese grater? (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that there are only 10 episodes of Quantum Leap with the word leap in the title? That is very cool. What are they? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Leaping of the Shrew. Return of the Evil the Evil Leaper. Return of the Evil Leaper. One-eyed, one-horned, flying Evil Leaper Leaper. <laughs> Man, turn it's my vibrator Johnny. off. Johnny.
No, then you'd be like, I can't hear my phone. <laughs> I can't hear my phone. <laughs> okay, are you going to count these on your fingers? Ready? On your fingers. Are you excited for the next episode, Heather? Always. In the next episode. <laughs> and with. I don't think you filled that part out. I didn't know it was supposed to. It's the first time you did the show sheet, isn't it? That's so cute. <laughs> Right. On the next episode, end with. <laughs> so on the next episode, we end with. Bye. <laughs> Macca's run.